What's going on, everybody? Welcome to Real World's first episode of The Value Add. We are going to be doing this every week where we introduce members of the Real World team and they share their stories and hopefully we can all learn from these stories. And, and I will say this firsthand, having met everybody, I'm, I'm Jan, CEO, hi. Uh, having met and, and known so many folks uh, for, for quite some time, um, they all are very, very inspiring folks. So uh, I'd like to introduce our lead investor for our, our current uh, equity crowdfunding campaign on Real World, uh, wefunder.com slash Real World, and anyone can join. Um, our lead investor, Ryan Carrison, is here with us today, and he's going to be talking about his journey through world-class uh, athlete athleticism, um, uh, working in the media, working in business finance, um, and I will say this, I met Ryan training Tai Chi in New York. Uh, I was teaching at the Assemblage. The Assemblage is a, uh, it was a wonderful space that really was a convergence point for people who uh, wanted to see a better world and were taking steps to, to make that happen through business, through finance and more. So I was uh, the, the head Tai Chi instructor in the space I also did some consulting on transmedia storytelling with the CEO, the late CEO, uh, God bless him, um, at, at the assemblage. So I met Ryan. Ryan came into one of my classes and he was, he approached me afterward and just brought up that that so many of the concepts in Tai Chi uh, were very much, I'm just going to press mute there, uh, very much uh, connected to his high performance mentality as a former professional racer. Uh, as a for, former uh, uh, professional squash player. And for the businesses that he built, uh, multiple media businesses that uh, you know really achieved some very unique success in the world. So I, I, with that said, I wanna pass it over to Ryan and, uh, and have him you know, just go from there. Thanks, Jan. I think, um, actually, could we leave it there? That was really good. So I could just leave everyone's imagination and fill the rest in. No, um, <laughs> It's funny, we had this conversation just chatting like casually uh, last week and um, and uh, we we're talking about, uh, I was talking about my background a bit more and he was, he was writing notes and he sent me a long email afterwards and it's just like, really, could you do a Q&A on this? It'd be really interesting. And um, I said, sure, I don't mind. I can't get it wrong. It's what happened to me. So, you know, I don't have to prepare for it really. It's just, um, uh, just interrupt me if I just carry on too long. So if anyone has a question or something, just just, just interrupt me. Because otherwise, I will just go on until everyone just finally hangs up. Um, <laughs> um, but um, yeah, Jan, I met at the assemblage, obviously, as uh, as he said, and that was for me a period of time when I just left BY as young, uh, which we'll get back to in a minute when we remind um, thirty odd years. But um, and uh, and uh, they have a lot of classes. The assemblage is a great place for wellness and 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 uh, nutrition and stuff and. I, I really enjoy working there. Then, uh, so I signed up for Tai Chi class, kind of as a whim. And um, I've done some martial arts stuff in the past. And I went to see, you know, obviously he was there with Jan, and just instantly felt a connection to the way he was teaching people, the way he was showing the movements, the flow of energy, just connected to so many key elements in my life that have brought me to be able to add value to real world and and you know advise and way forward in my career too. So. Um, and I found it was just such a strong, you know, the same, the same qualities were there. I think the same qualities when later, I think after the assemblage, um, it was about a year and a half, I think, Jan, wasn't it? I think we hadn't been in touch because uh, because you moved to LA uh, and then it was COVID, that, that thing came along. 
so we um and i was seeing updates as i often thought he's doing really well but um and then we reconnected and he spoke more about it and i was that he's, he's put these same the same values are there oh, my light was good wasn't it? um the same values are there so i said to him um you know, i'd love to be involved and chat about it more and learn more and i was just and it struck me really did struck me as struck me as, as surprising how many values that i'd learned over the years in these different disciplines have really uh, uh, kind of there are common thread through so many things in life and um uh, so we went into that last week and i'll go into a bit now and again so, right, right i'd like to just point out one thing you just said uh here is that is that uh <clears throat> quality is undeniable i think that's one of the most important things that that uh <clears throat> that we're talking about with real world but also when it comes to what real world is really focused on doing for for the world which is allowing people to have easier access to quality of character building for for whether it's for stories or even the, the, the stories we tell ourselves actually affect our own lives. So if we can give ourselves the time-tested quality, the tools, the time-tested tools that really lead to that quality, then we're going to be better off. I think it's really as simple as that. And, and I think that's that that very general, that general, but very, uh, for some reason in our culture, tough to attain <laughs> a concept is, is really where we're coming together. So many folks coming together, even on this call right now, uh, as I switch to the gallery mode, so everyone can see, you know, the, the, we have so many of our community members who I believe really truly live that and want more of that for the world. So um, just thank you for saying that, man. And I, I want to... <clears throat> I wanted to bring up one thing, you know, I want you to continue, but I, I, I was really struck by our conversation last week when it comes to uh, you starting so young and the, the power of starting so young. Um, and not to say that, that, that you have to start young to, to achieve in any particular place, uh, but I think that, that uh, I'll, I'll point this out. Starting karting, started driving uh, race, race carts at seven years old, and you were scouted for professional squash. I didn't know that professional squash did not have necessarily any particular age limits. He was scouted for professional squash at 11 years old and playing guys that were you know, even, even 45 years old at that age. Um, and to become a pro racer at the same time that you were playing pro squash, uh, you became a pro racer at 14 years old. Uh, and worked your way all the way up to the FIA, uh, which is a very sp special license. Um, and, you know, through uh, uh, up to, I think, Formula Two, you know, there's the Formula Four, Three, Two, One, I assume. Um, and please, you know, edu educate me and all of us on, on the. You're the making race. money. You're making money when you get to the one part, but I get that far. So I'm, I'm really interested in how. Because of my experience with with uh, my coach Josh Waiskin, the uh, the former chess or oh, the chess prodigy turned uh, martial arts champion, who uh, recruited myself and my father into the U.S. Tai Chi push hands team, and I later took over the team from him as a team appointed captain and coach. Um, what I learned from Josh was an ecosystem, creating your own ecosystem. Um, and the way to be very specific for Josh uh, and what I witnessed with Josh, he was writing a book called The Art of Learning, which anybody can go and check out right now. Uh, it's <clears throat> I recommend the Audible 
because Josh narrates it. And Tim Ferriss, the very close friends, uh, bought the rights to the Audible, convinced Josh to, to do the, narr the narration. So it's uh, it's great. And, and, and all the stuff he's talking about, the videos for the Tai Chi stuff, you can see on our, our Tai Chi YouTube channel. Um, but uh, he was writing that book at the same time that we were on the US team, that he was a coach. And his training would inform his writing and his writing would help him break down his training. So he had this this, this ecosystem where one thing helped to fuel the other thing. And, and it was very, very intentional. And there was always progress, measurable progress. So, you know, I, I took that idea personally and, and adapted it to my life. Um, the real world is very much based on what I call a transmedia trifecta, the relationship between the, the creator, um, the intellectual property that a creator creates, let's say George Lucas and Star Wars, and the studio system that actually uh, releases that. In the Star Wars example, it's 20th Century Fox, but for for us, it's um, it's it's very much shifted in culture uh, to be a, a, lots of different entities working together. So uh, that being said, I'm wondering how you used squash and how you used racing to inform each other and to result in the, 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 the track record that you've had, I, even outside of that, through uh, creating you know, AAA media companies and, and more. Well, um, I think, uh, thank you, that that's pretty good insightful um, stuff and good, good correlation to real world. I think the, for me, I think, and this is a story actually, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't mention to you, Jen, um, uh, when we spoke, but the first time I ever went karting was with my dad um, when I was seven. And it was like a children's you know, youth open day type thing. And, the, and they, they just put tyres down the middle of the main straight and you go to the left if you're coming to the pits and you go to the right if you're going in front of the lap. So first lap out, I go around and I go past the main straight and go in front of the lap. I look up, see if my dad's watching and um, my left rear tyre hits my, um, the, the, the last tyre on the on the tyre wall right? and the cart just, just flips. But I run to, so the thing that then slows me down is, is my head and the front of the cart. Um, I got a good helmet, but well, stock helmet, whatever they gave me at the, the, the karting club. Did the job, I think. Um, maybe my girlfriend would disagree. Um, but uh, but uh, no, it, um, uh, it was all scratched up and everything. And I remember just, and that was fine. I had no injuries whatsoever. But I, um, you know, I was obviously like, you know, crying, whatever, and just like, you know, and then my dad like came along, picked me up. I thought it was okay to take me home. And the next thing he just sat me back in the car. And I'm just like, and I didn't really know what was going on. He pulled a strap over and clicked on him. I was like, no, 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 no. I was like, get me out of this. So if you don't go now, you'll never do this ever again. And I don't know as a father myself if I actually would have that same, uh, that same action. Now, he did me a massive favor that day. And it's a difficult get back on the horse thing, obviously, but. And, um, but, you know, I was just, I was distraught and like, you know, whenever my, my kids, I've got three boys, whenever they get upset or something, you know, I want to wrap them in the biggest cotton wool I can get and just keep going. <laughs> so, you know, it's, um, for him to put it back in the car, uh, you know, I then, I then kind of dribbled around the, the course, probably got the course record for the slowest lap ever. Um, I think you can walk it faster. Um, and then just kept going faster and then I got into it and that, and that was, that was it. It broke it for me. I didn't think of it again, and I got competitive, and uh, and it went from there. But it was that if if I don't know what, how my life would have gone because that was such a pivotal moment for me, um, karting. That um, if he'd have not done that, um, had it been also if I'd not hit the tire wall, it also would have been the same as the same result in my career. So if I'd have been more responsible, or he'd been a um, 
uh, a softer dad than maybe uh, you know <laughs> either way um it's interesting but no that so so yeah the squash squash for me came about because right, my dad, no, I'm sorry, I, I want to talk about that for one second too, because I, I met a wonderful skateboarder um, who moved into, who who did not, I, I'm wondering, he got an injury. He got an injury, and once he got that injury uh, uh, doing some tricks, he said he could never do the tricks again the same way. He said it couldn't, it was all in his, in his head. And yeah. I'm wondering for you, getting strapped back in and having that moment of being like, okay, I, I got to get out of here. And your dad's like, no, you, you have to stay. You, you have to do it. Cause he knew that that would be, that's the trajectory. If you don't get back in right now, then you may never get back in. So I'm right. wondering for, for, for folks who, who got back in like this skateboarder, but then still yeah. had the mental blockage that yeah. may not have allowed him to execute the way that he previously executed or, and even go beyond it. What would you, any advice that you might have? Yeah, I mean, it, it happened, and it happens later in your career as well. I had a few, you know, crashed up and I drove from Porsche in the US. I was here at just over 200 miles an hour on the pit straights. So I came out of the pits on cold tires, hit the throttle too hard, went sideways and hit my rear end. So I went to put me into a spin at 200 miles an hour. Um, I walked away from that because the cars are brilliant and 911s are fantastic cars. But and, so it happens at all different ages. But the, and the big difference is, whether you caused the crash or as a manuf you know, or as a fault. So, so if I'd have had like I was going down the straight and a tire burst or something, then that probably would have been a bigger prohibitor for me to then get back up to speed than the fact that it was my mistake. So I wasn't concentrating enough. I was looking to see if my dad was watching me. All right. So it taught me that lesson just to, okay, you can't do that. You've got to focus entirely where you are and dial into what you're doing. Um, and that was the way I could able, I was able to rationalize. You know, after a few laps of tiptoeing around, people going past me, waving at me, saying, come on, um, you know, that, that was a way for me to rationalize. Okay, I did that to myself, so don't do that again. <laughs> um, so that's a, I think that's a big, a big factor. But even if it is a mechanical thing, you know, you, you, when you, as you go up the ranks and you have cars being prepared for you by engineers, you, know, you trust them, they're like your team, right? And you, it's like a very much like, there's a lot of Formula One drivers now, there's a few younger ones. And they're very good because they they work with the teams. They'll, they'll be the last guy to leave the garage. They won't leave the garage as soon as the race is over and go to the hotel. They'll be they'll be there packing away the stuff with with the team. And that cohesiveness in the team is strong. And you learn to trust them. You have to trust them. It's not in my control. So you focus on what's in your control, and that's the car. Um, so even if you have a crash that is a mechanical fault, even though it's harder to get through mentally when you're younger, the peacefulness from that comes from okay, you know what. I trust my team. I trust everything that's built here. I can't change that. I'm just going to drive as I drive and focus on what I'm focused on. Um, so I think uh, that, that was the big difference to me as to how I was able to get back in and get competitive again, get back up to speed. But because um, I never looked once looked at the crowd again. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so that was a big, big thing. But that's so through, through karting, obviously, I went back the next week and did it. And then uh, a coach at the car club, and it's a, it's a famous uh, Brands, Brands Hatch, uh, sorry, near Brands Hatch called, um, it just changed the name recently, but it's where Lewis Hamilton used to go for one driver. Um, and uh, and Ryan House, is it Ryan House? And um, they offered me to come back and be a part of their youth race team. So different race teams, and, or, or you escalate with escalate through engine size, so you get faster cars. 
So you have age groups and they're faster cars. If you do well, they'll, you know, you can carry on. Uh, it costs, it doesn't cost too much money, but now a, a casting like for seven to 14 will cost you, or seven to 13 will cost you about a million dollars minimum online new tires and stuff like that um uh, so there's some rich kids there that spend a lot and they have an advantage they have a little better suspension or better tires we'd often get secondhand tires and things and people you know um to save them money but uh but you work your way up so but then obviously your physical fitness is a big difference so um uh, f1 you know legend at center was quite small Right, so he was he was phenomenally fast in the straights, but around the corners, not so much, right? Because the heavier guy was able to kind of use his weight as a balance, and, and driving really is always about balance. I think that's part of Tai Chi and stuff, and the, the freedom of movement. You know, and I've taught these things kind of in a little bit of way to, to my girlfriend, who's been very good at them. She's actually very good. I think would be actually a very, very good driver. But things like if, if you're going to brake really hard into a corner, obviously you're always braking a straight line, but it's a um you tap the brakes first, then you put the brakes on hard. And that's really just to shift the balance of the car from being this upward trajectory of acceleration to flat. So, you, so all the tires have the maximum adhesion, the maximum amount of surface area touching the ground when you put the full amount of pressure on the brakes. Otherwise you might lock a front wheel. If you go straight from accelerating to, to braking, it would just go like that to that. And you could lock a front wheel and not make the turn. So to maximize your braking time, um, uh, which is to minimize the braking distance so you brake later. Um, you, you, do, you have that tap tap kind of a thing, just shifts the weight. Uh, and the same with you see it with Formula One drivers on TV or IndyCar drivers um, on the street on circuits. They will often steer, if it's a right hand turn, they'll steer left and right to just shift that weight balance across to get it back and then across again. It's all about managing the tires and the tread. So so much about so much about karting and any kind of car driving and racing is management and understanding the car and being feeling the car and balance and i think that's what i think is a key gone through my life through everything is to make sure everything's balanced um whether it's work yeah, yes we don't question the side rating um <laughs> right yes um this it's a uh, and it's it's high, you know that that's exa exa you know, exacerbated with when it's in wet conditions and things like that, and not reacting too quickly. And people would tend to crash if they in wet conditions because they're not correct too much, and all of a sudden the front tires will get purchased, and the next thing you know, they're darting their direction. But um, right, right. I want I want to just point out three three big points that I feel like you you, you made here. Yeah. <clears throat> but but as before, we keep going. For one, you were saying that <clears throat> you made the decision to amplify your focus. So the decision to amplify your focus, um, uh, it, it, would you say it was as simple as a decision to amplify your focus to say, I can't yes. do this again, I yeah. can only do this. So you made this decision. Yeah, because, <clears throat> because the results of the, not making that decision were, were not good. Um, and me trying around the circuit, you know, half-heartedly, that competitiveness in me was never satisfied. I was like, oh, this I want to be faster. That's you thinking, well, what do I do wrong? What do I do wrong? And um, you're like, well, just, just, just dial yourself in. You're, you've got one job right now, which is this car. And then feel the tires. And from one drivers today, the best talk about the, the tires, the, the surface of tires, if they talk of it like the, the, like the texture of your skin in your hand, that they can feel it so intensely. Because so feeling the car is so important. And karting is great for that because it's so stripped down and bare. You know, haven't got big suspension like you have in a road car. It's just very, you're like an inch off the ground. And you just dart into the car. 
So being you need to just completely absorb yourself in the world. I think that and that focus, that hyper focus, is really essential if you're going to progress in. I think in anything, really. You look at anyone that's done, you know, amazing things in their career. They've been hyper focused on something, and uh, at the expense of other things in life. Um, and that's where the balance comes in. We need to. That's what we're working on. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what. Ever since we talked about real world, you've you've had me uh, throw that balance off and be real about the real world. <laughs> no, it's great. But um, well, well, I, I mean, so I, I want to talk about balance and, and bringing that back into the the second thing I want to underline, which was you've mentioned so many things. Um, it, it's it's very much a Tai Chi principle as well, but it, it goes across so many the the wind up. The, 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 uh, the body mechanic of going left before going right. If you want to go right, you go left first, and et cetera. And I think this is really interesting because this, it, it's, it seems to me that you're, that the, bring it back to the squash, like it, it seems like the, the mechanics that you were learning there helped inform the racing. Yeah, and, that, yeah. And, and so, and could you talk a little bit about that? How, yeah. how okay, again, this is now the one thing fueling the other thing, it seems. Yeah, so, so squash was, my dad always played squash. Um, and so um, he, he didn't really race cars that much, um, but he, but I was interested in it. We got four one together, that's why we got karting, but squash he played. So I started doing as a way to keep fit for motorsports. So motorsports, you have to be, I mean, they're, they're probably second to swimmers in terms of fitness, these athletes that, that really are, um, high press you know really really um they're not like the old school drivers that could have a finish off that can of beer and a cigarette before they got in the car uh these days they're you know they're they really are elite athletes um and, uh, why, why would you say that and it, it, it would are there because uh, i'm i want to know a little bit more about what it means yeah. in the cockpit and not the cockpit the, the drive behind the driver's yeah, no, it's, 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 okay, the cockpit. Cockpit. okay so like what kind of strength do you need to to be in, in full command of that vehicle a lot of it is the neck. Um, also, you, you you lose a lot of you, you sweat a lot in the car. You I mean you're right behind, right in front of the engine. Um, everything around you is hot. They don't know everything on the car. Sole purpose is for speed, and and they have weight limits. So the the more weight you have, then the less um, ballast you have to play with. So they have, to have if you're if they have a lighter car. They can use ballast around different parts of the car to make sure the car is nicely balanced. Interesting. So you have to essentially um, optimize your body fat and your muscle right. mass. Okay. Yeah, yeah. And it got it got ridiculous a few, a few years ago. It got ridiculous where the the, the minimum weight was too um, too low. I think, and, and drivers were just not not eating or drinking enough, and a few would like pass out like after the race, and they were getting super skinny. So they changed that rule, made up to it a bit, but. Um, it all came down to yeah, is every you know only have you have a hundred kilos of fuel in the car, so you know um, that's a big thing you got to take into account when you first race towards you know, from the lights racing towards the first corner, is that you're now racing towards the first corner for the first time on cold tires, um, which won't have as much grip, and you have got hundred kilos of fuel on board, and um, you know you don't want to miss your braking point and let people go past you. You don't want to get the other way wrong and lock a tire and take someone else out. So that's always a delicate balance. Again, that's the fear in the car. But um, in terms of when you're in that cockpit, um, it's, I mean, for me, it's very much, once you're in that seat, it's nothing else really matters. You're darted in and you feel everything. You hear every little noise, especially if you're leading a race, every little noise, you'll hear a tweak of the car, you're like, the engine's not right. And it panics you. But um, 
so so for me fitness is a huge thing because you need strength in your neck because the g-forces you know three, you know, three or four g's in your neck so you think of your, your, your head weight plus your helmet weight um around a you know a lot you know, 180 mile an hour curve and you, you know you've been pulled this way you need to have you know you can't do that really you need to be you need to be kind of focused in the middle so you have a little bit of give but you know you don't you can't do too much are you um, doing weighted weighted neck exercises to yeah to... yeah okay. they have basically a lot of the drivers huge elastic bands uh, it's actually something you're just doing this wow. with your trainers and stuff but um a big part of it is reactions obviously so if you feel it you know they try and say there's a few key phrases that um i wanted to bring out which is like keeping ahead of the slide um and that and to bring it to real world right everyone driving if and for driving in new york tonight for example might be some black ice out there um and you know always being so having both hands on the wheel where you feel it feel that car and if you feel it start to step out and it's a slight adjustment to bring it back in not not a quick one but a slight adjustment but you need to be that response time needs to be so so quick um and and even the stop lights have five lights to go red then it goes out and it's race on you know, your reaction times they're like they're like 0.2 to a second um so you have to really be dialed in to do these things so, so a lot of formula drivers have back, what's called a batak machine which is like a, a wall of lights it's almost like whack-a-mole um but ad lights and they and they do it and it starts and they're like it's all about just, you know, periphery vision and stuff like that and just where is it and hitting it and, it, and so that's a big part of the training is reaction time so fitness reaction time your own speed is all important and that's why squash was such a great thing to get into my dad's already into it so i played with him and it's very much a exhausting sport um very physically demanding you don't need to be big and muscly for it which is good because you don't want to be big and muscly for racing either um and uh and it's about reactions and i was very fortunate my coach was coached by the england coach at the time and he an england coach was was in the school of thought of flow energy flow back to tai chi and and the textbook squash moves has you run step towards the corner stop hit through the ball and back out um and his was step towards the ball hit it flow and move out and you never stop that was a big shift in my game um, for squash. The kind of it's what the pros do, so all the professionals do. But it was a it was a big change. I was two on the squash court by myself and just do ghosting. So it's just the racket and just, just do from the mid to the middle of the court and just go and do ghosting. Run to the front, do ghosting. I'll be sweating for you know, four to five minutes or so, just with headphones on. So um, and the reaction part, my coach would be behind me for some sessions, and it'd be like I'd be standing on the tee and he'd say. It's a you know forehand volley, jump, backhand volley, jump, yeah, yeah. forehand drive, I go down. So it was very much a quick reaction. So um, which in squash you need, um, and in racing you need. So squash is really something that I did to give my fitness level high for for racing, um, and to keep my reactions and my sharpness kind of there. And uh, and and bringing in what you mentioned before, I was playing with forty-five year olds. I played for so I played for my school at the time. Played for um, the county. Uh, eventually played for England um, as well. Um, but I was also part of a local men's team. Now, all of a sudden, playing a men's team was another big lesson in life for me. Is I played these men that were like forty-five years old, um, a little bit of pot bellies. You know, um, I could run rings on them for hours, right? Hours wasn't a problem. Um, 
but um because my fitness is super high i'm young and everything and so they but they have all these little tricks these little, little shots they do these little like stepping your way a little bit so you start to learn like okay i was like what are they doing i'm like you know, i'm coachable I'm, I'm textbook coachable so I, I was like this is i'm by the book and they're not playing by the book how are they doing this because they've learned from just playing casually with their friends I've learned because I've had lessons and trained, you know. I'm like, but this is this is abnormal. This isn't this isn't like a like Rafael versus Federer kind of style difference. This is like, you know, it's just Joe Schmo playing who's just learned by hitting the ball around. And he's just he's got his little tactics. He's like, I can't beat the little bastard when uh, you know around the court, but I could step in his way a little bit and you know and get him, I knock him up his game. And I remember one game, this guy, all he could do, the only shot he could do was off the serve was a high cross-court lob and and it was like really hard for me to stretch to hit it. And every single time he did it, I could, you know, I'd hit it back either poorly and he'd punish it and, you know, win the point, or I'd hit it out. And he, he beat me that game. And I was so much better than him, but he beat me. And I was just so frustrated at that. But, um, you know, it hurt like a hurt, must not hurt as in, as in injury, but, but I felt this muscle hit I'd never felt before. I was like, oh, it's muscle back here. I was like, I told my coach, is that okay? We're doing, we're doing high volleys. So the next week, we did these high volleys, which was agony. But it was, you know, but that knowledge and knowing, okay, you're not going to come across fair competitors. You're going to come across people that aren't going to play fair or fair in a different sense, maybe. You know, you know, they're playing by their own rules they developed. Or, and it's so that, that, that gave me a life lesson in many respects. Um, and it's come through the business. People do different things in business, they try and trip you up or, or they'll subconsciously mention a price for a product, you know, for a video, for something they want you to do, just to get that in there early on. And then they come back to pricing, you know, you, they kind of, they think you've already kind of perceived that thought. They'll say, oh, I've only got a 12K budget or something early on. And like when it comes around to actually talking about pricing, always in your head is 12K, 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 12K. You know, you price out like 40K, you just be, you know, they're planting these little seeds into you. So it made me aware, because I've been in a very controlled environment racing and squash at the time for me was very controlled i was in it was had a coach for each uh, i was going to you know officially organize events have regulations and rules and everyone adhered by them and everyone did the same thing so you know and and all of a sudden you see these people that are breaking those rules and then they're not really rules they're just they're just doing it a different way and it made me realize at a very young age that i had to that okay there isn't just this one way, this is what structured way of doing it, but you can do it another way and be effective. You can beat me. And I've got to overcome that. So that, that's, that's interesting. It's, it's reminds me of something that, um, that Josh and uh, the assistant coach, Dan, Dan Caulfield, uh, both of them uh, worked with me to understand the concepts of unspoken agreements. And <clears throat> that in every arena, there's a slew of unspoken agreements that uh, if you identify those and then do something different, you can throw off the opponent. And when I entered into judo, for example, um, and I'm a white belt in judo, but I'm playing against black belts and throwing them on the floor, the way that I got to get to that position in, in that place was recognize that one of the things that they would do was they would start with, by holding the, uh, the lapel. They, they would allow the 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 competitors would allow them each other to actually just get a grip on each other as part of the unspoken agreement before the play starts. And so if I just wouldn't let that happen, then I'm I'm playing my game rather than playing their game. And so that's would you say that that is is a similar concept of what you 
you, you yeah recognize? it definitely is yeah it's, and and i think that's that's the same for like karate right so people that, that they a certain way they go about it and i think you but someone a karate would you know go against someone's jiu-jitsu brazilian jiu-jitsu for example and and, and not stand a chance because they're they, they're used to their you know and the jiu-jitsu guy can see what the guy the karate you know, black belt's gonna do guys gonna do um you know a mile off he's setting himself up for this type of move and he'll just counter it with a different move that the karate guy's like you can't do that what you can't do that so and the disciplines can can pigeon i mean they, they pigeonhole you for a reason because they, they, they t- that's about a teaching it's a methodology that works but in the real world when you apply it on a broader spectrum with other people with, with different disciplines it's like it, it cannot it, it almost hinges upon your success so the squash taught me to in that sense taught me that okay not everyone's going to be f- fair now in racing how it translates is is crashing with someone so if someone's going to overtake you usually at the start of the season um, i'm going to ask you about in, about sharing the concept of inviting the crash which I yeah that's this, really is, this is it this is it this okay. is it yeah so um which is if you go into like a 50 you know, 50 kind of corner you know um where someone's trying to overtake you or you're trying to, or you're trying to overtake them whatever it may be is you know you if you you need to show who you are as a driver to everyone else um, and if you're willing to crash, then you just stick it in there. So it's 50-50, and you might say, okay, you know what, I'll back out of this because we're going to crash and hit front wings or something like that, or knock us out of the race, or the repercussions are. This is why you do it at the start of the season when things don't matter as much. It's like that first um, scene in Akira, that chicken game, the two motorcycle guys. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, seriously. And, and, and if it was two racing drivers, they both hit each other. <laughs> because, you know, you know, and you're taught to, you're told, you know, I was told, don't yield, don't yield, just stick it in there. And if he crashes into you, so what? He crashes into you. And then every single, every other person will know that if it's 50 50 with Ryan, you know, he's not going to yield. So you better get out of the way unless you want to crash. So you set the tone for who you are straight away. And, and it's, uh, and it's counterintuitive, but it's, but it's makes a lot of sense. And I think, um, you know, uh, so, so yeah, that, that's how it applied in racing is breaking your own rules. You know, you're like, okay, no, no I'll conserve Tyler back out of this. I'll get him on the next straight or I'll, I'll try and do the overlap, whatever it is. And, and you know, but you've got to know, you know I'm going to stay in here and let everyone know that I, you know, I'm relentless. I'm, I'm, I'm the wolf here. <laughs> I, I, that kind I, of right. I, I want to pause on that. I want to just highlight this for a second because I think this is really, really important, especially. You know, I, I, I keep on talking about my experience in, in the Tai Chi world. And the reason I, and yielding is a major component of Tai Chi. Um, however, the, the understanding that yielding is, is, is something that you want to be really good at, but not something that you always do, I think is, is something that, that I often get into, uh, or I should say, I often avoid. Uh, challenges, challenging conversations with with Tai Chi players because they believe so wholeheartedly that Tai Chi, in Tai Chi, you yield. Uh, and that is just something that you do. However, I think it's just as important to be able to create the wall, to be able to say, I am firm, I am strong, I will not yield. So to be able to do both of those things to me is actually balance versus saying that, okay, you know, the, like you either do one thing or the other. And, and if you only do, if you're only good at one or the other, then you're obviously out of balance. So I think it's a really interesting concept that, that, uh, that especially from a competitive mindset position of saying, hey, you know what, I, when people 
when I step into the arena or when people see me on the, on the, on the track, they know that I will, when it comes down to it, I'm willing to give my all rather than back out. And I think that message is super important because in that you can still have so many options, um, but they, it, just the standard has been set. So I just wanted to, to highlight that. Yeah. Really, really important. Um, I see takeaway. someone commented on it. Um, uh, Sensei said that I heard somewhere bad boxers get hit, good boxers get hit less. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, in, in, in that for, for boxing, I think, yeah, definitely the, the defensive part of it is great. But I think this, the, again, it's controlling your opponents, right? It's giving your opponents an impression of yourself. And that they, you know, and it's frustrating. If I was funny, if I was boxing someone and, they, and I couldn't, I kept they're blocking everything really well, it'd be incredibly frustrating. Oh, so, um, but Mike's got a, a, a question. Yeah, go for it, Mike. Oh, yeah. So I just wanted to comment what I meant there was that if you're going to box at all or do any combat sport, hmm. you have to be willing to get hit. Or if you're doing Tai Chi, you have to be willing to lose, you know? I wasn't saying, you know, walk and get your face smashed. I was saying you have to oh, make yeah, yeah. something. Yeah, no, I agree. No, I got you. I got what you're saying. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, and it's true. And I think you have to, you, you have to learn that, um, yeah, that you, you, you do survive. You're fine. It's like, you know, I'll give a terrible analogy. My dog um, is a good swimmer, right? But he didn't like, didn't, uh, you know, he was trepidated, trepid, uh, what's the word? Sorry. Yeah. Um, trepidatious. That doesn't make sense. But, you know, anyway. He was not, you know, you know what I mean. Um, he was, uh, he was cautious. I got in the water, so I just threw him in. Right? I threw him in, and once he got in, he was fine. He ran back to me. I picked him up. I threw him in again. The third time, he ran straight past me and jumped in. Um, and you know, once he knew he couldn't die from it, it was all right. He was, he loved it, and he was fine. And I think, um, you know, so you have to get hit. You have to go through some of these things. You're right, um, and. Uh, and then, then you can learn to circumvent them. You can learn to deal with them if you know if it catches you off guard, and you know it won't throw you off your game for the rest of the the match if you're boxing, or you know, um, or you know, squash if someone barges you, even though they went, you know, you get a point out of it or something. You, you know, you're not, you know, it doesn't knock you off your game. Um, you, you said something really, really uh, powerful that I remember in our conversation along to this point, which was the moment you don't go for a gap. Is the moment you're no longer a racing driver. Well, I have to say it's not my quote, it's Adam Senna's quote, so I can't take his quote. <laughs> uh, he was a legend, but he used to say the moment you don't go, he was, he was at the time he was being criticized for um, a crash he was involved in, um, where he went for a gap that opened up and uh, and it resulted in him crashing. Um, and he said that he said, the moment you don't go for a gap, you're no longer a, you're no longer a racing driver. Um, and I think, um, to me, I kind of took that in a lot and then turned it into kind of creating the gap. So I create that opportunity. Um, and that, that is a, a mixture of all the skills we talked about. So, so you, so you adapted that into brother going for the gap or not to creating the opportunity. Making yeah. It. Yeah. It's kind of like one, one step before. So if, if the gap isn't opening up, whatever, I'm going to try and create it either by taking a line. If I'm following someone, my line into a certain corner is always going to be wider than his. So he knows oh, that's what he does. That's what, that's what his move is. And then all of a sudden I switch tactics and go, yeah, the side someone's like, in I can't remember which boxing film was. Then uh, this boxing analogy has taken off now, but I, I, do, I love it. But um, where all of a sudden you know, I switched to being left-handed or something and not to think it was Creed maybe. 
Uh, but uh, he was uh, you know, boxing. He goes, oh, maybe it was the Jake Gyllenhaal one, actually. Um, uh, and, he, and he switched. And he goes, like, now I like, switched to being left-handed. And he just takes him out. And, um, and it, you know, it's, it's, it's the same thing. So we're leading, you lead that opponent down this route and you carry on that pattern. And then all of a sudden you can switch it up. Um, and I think, uh, yes, yeah, so all these things are just tools that I think that, that again, they reared themselves up in both these disciplines in squash and and in, in motorsports for me. And that just drives it home even more. Um, and uh, yeah, about so big thing for me, the big motivating kind of uh, words for me are, are send it, right? So I say send it a lot. And, and for a lot of drivers, if you hear them on the radio, they say send it, which is like sending it down the inside. So if you're going to overtake someone, just send the car on there, just send it in there. It's almost like, go for it, you can do it. Go on get past him um so send it for me and my company that i started called, called flat out um you know go flat out give it everything you got um and uh so that mentality has always come across anything i put myself into and if it's not something i, I want to apply that to then it's not something i'm interested in so i shouldn't do it right Abel, um, abel's got a question go for it hi um i had a question a couple questions actually um, being as how you have reached a certain level of mastery in the things that you, your, your goals in your career, um, I was curious if you ever experienced, this is kind of a newer concept to me that has come into my focus called imposter syndrome. And I was curious, you know, starting at a young age, is that something that you still experienced? And if so, how you have dealt with that? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it's um it's coming it's probably more coming to play for me in the business world, um, uh, which um I'll get it, I'll, I'll briefly touch on in a minute. But um, but yeah, it's you do. I mean, certainly when I started racing internationally or across Europe, you know, with different people you're not on your home ground, people you know, and uh, sometimes I go alone, uh, so like that you feel very vulnerable. You think like, oh, I shouldn't you know these guys are really good. I'm not good enough to be here. Um, but honestly, once you're in your helmet and you're in your in your cart, whatever you're you you're in that zone. That's your safe. That's your safe place. Um, and you know the the cockpits of today, these cars, the the, the safety cells or the way you sit is like both your. It's kind of like a coffin in a way, but it's, it's the strongest part of the car. So the car, everything else is designed to crumble off around you in a big crash. But but the safety cell which you're in is solid. Um, and um, so once you once you're in that back in your car, your driving position and stuff, then you feel you you, uh, you overcome anything else that gets blocked out, and you just focus on. And ultimately, I think the same same thing as squash, and something with um, motor racing it comes down to you, right? So what other people do is important, obviously, but you know you're not affect what you do doesn't really necessarily always reflect, affect them how they perform. If they're performing really well and they're really good at breaking later than you or something you know I, I can't do much about that apart from trying to push myself so it's down to me to be better um i'm a squash if they're very good at playing certain shots all i can do is try and avoid them from playing that playing that shot <laughs> um but i think uh in terms of yeah but in terms of that, that vulnerability probably more be it probably more got into my head in squash and in, in, in racing because in racing you are in that zone but in squash you're 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 not you're exposed that's why i never 
that's why I'd never buy a motorcycle or ride a motorcycle because a car I feel very safe in and I drive uh, I don't drive too fast but a little bit fast but if um, and I'm competitive if someone came alongside me or something on the freeway I, I don't want I put my foot down a little bit and get past <laughs> um, it's just childish thing but uh, if I was on a motorcycle I'd try and probably do the same thing and end up probably killing myself so I'm not so I'm not in that safety so I'm not protected by a car um, so um, but yeah so, so with squash you're exposed to some degree um, so maybe it's more relevant there but um, again it's getting into your rhythm and if you're if you get into your rhythm you're fine because if, you, if you're a split second off in squash for example you're not in the right position when you hit the ball and you're going to hit a, either a you know not a tight shot along the wall it's going to be a bit loose and able to attack it so you know i noticed that mostly when i just stopped i didn't play squash for, i think for about three months i think i got injuries i think so I, I, I don't drink at all because i motorsports and squash and didn't you know your fitness all the time um and i think i drank one night i jumped off a, uh, a truck or a van just a roof uh, to jump down i was just i was being an idiot i mean i hadn't drunk before i was in college i bruised my heel and it sounds pathetic, but it bloody hurt. Bloody hurt. And um, uh, I could barely walk. I'm like, my roommate took me to, to hospital. He's like, you better have broken something because I'm pissed off I'm just driving to the hospital right now. And there was nothing wrong with my foot. It was just a bruised heel. But it hurt so much. And um, and uh, I couldn't play squash for a while because that because that little injury. Um, and it made you realize how, how fragile you are, really. Um, and... Uh, I thought I'm into all the time, but it did hurt actually a lot of the time, which is a bad sign, I think. <laughs> it hurts when you're drunk. But um, no, that imposter thing does, does come in, I think, uh, to everyone. And then career-wise, it came in a lot. But things move so quickly these days, especially with social media, with everything online, everything moves so fast that you don't really have, almost have time to pause and have that doubt. Um, I don't prepare for me. I don't prepare for this. I don't prepare for meetings. I just throw myself in and let it go where it goes. Um, and uh, often, despite this, I'm involved in a lot of listening, um, especially to clients. And uh, like when I've worked at Ernst Young, if you're a good consultant, you listen to what the, the client has to say, and then you repeat it back to them in a different, in a slightly different way. And all of a sudden, they love you and they want to hire you because they want to hear validation. But um, but yeah, but that, that so that's the imposter syndrome probably for more in the business world. Like, you know, can we do this? And, you know, um, we've had a good street now, but is that just luck or whatever it is? And, and you know, it, yeah, it's uh, something I haven't thought about for a while. Actually, you've kind of got me there. I thought about, but um, so, said, tomorrow I'm gonna be really tomorrow I'll be really off my game. I'll be like, oh no, I can't do this. I'm really. <laughs> so what I, I hear from you is that you um, make it a point to be really focused in the moment. And so, do you think that Tai Chi? has helped you is that something that's helped bring you and it, and do you have um like as an actor we often have these like warm-ups that we do before we're going to get into a scene or you know just like you would warm up before you exercise or play a sport do you have any warm-ups to get mentally prepared for um a race yeah it's basically getting into my own zone i think um and that kind of plays into i'm an only child um so my dad always worked away, um, and so I had a lot of time on my own. And um, so my safe place is kind of myself in a way. And I've got you know too many pairs of noise cancelling headphones um, that I wear, and that gets me in the zone pretty much. I put them on, and block the world out, and I get into my own head. 
and um, nothing else matters. I mean, you know, if I've got this bill to pay or this thing to deal with, right now I can't do anything about it. And I've got, and that, that took that took a while to really internalize and put into practice um, that skill, um, especially with business, because you'd be like, well, I'm writing this pitch or something, and I do have to reply to this or this email from my boss and that. You know, it's it's hard. It was harder in that sense, but with sports and stuff, it was just like this is a, a quiet time. No one disturbed me. Headphones on, and I, I, even when I was when I was um, uh, you know, working at different agencies and things, I've had, I have headphones on because I don't. That was then assigned to everyone else. So Ryan's busy, and I, often I wouldn't have any music play. I could hear them. I hear someone go, hey, "Ryan, Ryan," I would just sleep on them because <laughs> they don't know I'm not listening to music. But it was a because I had to stay inside my head, I had to stay inside my zone. And and I couldn't be interrupted with meetings, so I'd put four, four hour blocks so I could get a piece of work done. Otherwise you can't get anything achieved. So um, yeah, the, the you know, Tai Chi is something that I think has relaxed me a lot. I think has brought a peacefulness to a lot of that process and a peacefulness to a lot of the preparation and kind of, a, yeah. It, I mean, I think it just gives you strength, gives you great strength um, in yourself. Yeah, someone said yeah, but help, helps me block out the noise. I think that's right. Uh, that's 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 uh, Ruben, one of our uh, not only a JFH hero but a, 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 a Shaolin monk and Tai Chi practitioner. <laughs> we wow. have a few Tai Chi practitioners on here. Um, you know, Ryan, I, I wanted to to go across a few ideas that you shared. Thank you, Abel, for those great questions. Um, I wanted to go to through a, a few ideas that you you shared that I thought added a instant value to me uh, when we spoke about this. And I'll say that just to close out one of the previous things we spoke about, uh, creating the gap, you know, that's that's 100% what we're doing with, with real world, which is recognizing opportunity uh, in, in the world of media uh, and specifically the opportunity for that we all have utilizing these, these, these you know, devices in our pocket with cameras on them. Uh, to to create our own to create story to create cinematic stories and to tie them together to actually unite our stories um, and what that actually means for for what we're used to and accustomed to as a culture uh, in terms of cinema where we're accustomed to uh, a larger entity placing a story in front of us and then essentially accepting that story that's what has happened for many years uh, and and that that narrative has has gradually been shifting. And I think in the last couple of years, it's it's what we've been preparing to do and, and the gap we've been creating um, has very much synced up with culture where people want their stories. They, 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 they want their stories heard and they, they, we want to feel more unity. So I think that, uh, you know, on, on when it comes to creating a gap, uh, for years I was pitching real world in in the, the in Hollywood and then in the New York startup ecosystem and in both places that are both very similar. Uh, uh, people were saying, you're nuts, you're crazy. And uh, now we're in a position where culture meets the, as Deepak Chopra would put it, preparedness meets opportunity equals luck. So it, you are lucky if you prepared and then the opportunity comes to you. So, so I, I love, where we are right now because we are very well prepared for the world which is now asking for the exact thing that we prepared 
Um, so uh, that's that's uh, I think the value of creating the gap is the, the recognition of your preparedness will meet the opportunity. Um, it is definitely. Sorry. Uh, so the next thing I want to, to, to connect on is that um, you shared a, an amazing, you were talking about breaking earlier. And yeah. I remember we were, we were talking about uh, the concept yeah, a, of apex speed. Yes, sacrificing yeah. apex yeah. speed for, for position. And that to me yeah. was really dynamic. And I think a lot of okay. people can get something out of that. Yeah, I was, I, I'll, I'll talk about that. And um, um, uh, the recently crowned champ, former one world champion, Max Verstappen, I was watching a video from a guy that, I used to race with a guy called Scott Mansell, um, who has a, um, a channel called uh, Driver61. Um, he's a very good commentator on the sport, and he's just very level-headed and lovely guy. Um, and um, he talked about Max Verstappen's braking style, and this one that I've had for years, um, but I've not seen many anywhere else. There's not something I've been taught anywhere else. I've seen taught anywhere else. And he gave it, he coined it. I can't remember how he coined it now. Um, um, whatever he, he gave it a name, and he said, like, I'm, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna claim that as mine." Um, and I called him afterwards, and um, uh, I said, "No, I shot an email afterwards, and I said, so that's exactly the move I make. That's exactly how I do it. I rotate. So, because of overtaking, and I explain in this in, in a quick summary, but obviously the best thing about overtaking is that you, you you're following someone into a corner, and you step out, and you you break later than them." Um, but you have to keep breaking a straight line. Again, balance. It's keeping that balance. So you break and you come off the brakes and you turn in. And at the apex, which is the slowest part of the corner, before it's that you should be going, um, you know, the, it's very rare that the other car will be on the outside of you. Very rare. They're going to be tucked in behind you trying to get your slipstream for the next turn. Um, that's assuming no one crashes into each other, obviously. Um, so... As we, as I thought about that, I thought, okay, well, when you step out, sometimes you can't always late. If someone's a late breaker, they're going to do it. But I looked at it as almost Pythagoras' theorem. So you've got this triangle for this for this corner. He's going to break in a straight line, and he's going to turn in. Almost like the two, the the right hand, yeah, the ninety degree turn. Um, I thought I'm going to go the diagonal. Right. So I think this is going to be a better path. I can break a lot later. I've got more road. Um, and then when I get to the apex, I'm gonna have, I'm gonna have a much slower minimum, much slower minimum speed than anybody else, than he will have normally because it's not the typical racing line. But he's behind me, so it doesn't make a difference because he's stuck behind me. So he's have to go slow as well. So I so to I try to draw it actually for Jen, um, and uh, I didn't do a good, great job with the drawing. I admit. So I'm gonna do it again and once more do it bad example of the drawing but i'll give you but it'll give you the good reference um and here's my middle move so it's a terrible terrible drawing this is the, my opponent this is me <laughs> going into the apex here they were kind of breaking a straight line here and then turn turn in and i would just go i would just go diagonally straight towards the corner so um uh my artist's career was very short, as you can tell. You were um, the one on the left or the one on the inside? The one that got in front, <laughs> inside, okay. inside, inside. Okay. So I went on the inside, but it was a, so normally on the inside, you, you pull alongside of them, break in a straight line with them, break late on them to get in front of them to then turn in. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the typical move um, of most overtaking in, in Formula One and different karting sports and different uh, sports. Um, 
but I was, it was one drive, one race I was doing, I think it was casting. I was just frustrated because I couldn't get past this person. He's breaking late. I couldn't do it. I think I, I did it once where I stepped out, broke late, really later than him. And, and I missed the corner. So I just you know, went wide and he just put touch on the inside of me and off he went. And I was like, damn it. So I thought, I thought you know what, I'm just going I'm to nosedive towards the apex. Just going to nosedive towards it. So I just turned, flicked my car. So it was uh, rather than kind of stepping, smoothly stepping out, it was just like a flick of a wheel to, get, uh, you know, to keep my balance right and then just go straight towards the corner, which is the most inefficient way to take the corner if I was doing like, my own lap on my own. But um, because my minimum speed on that corner was probably 15 miles an hour slower than, than it had been on every other lap. And so the person I overtook is frustrated as hell, right? He's like, hey, I've nosedived. So he's not seen me do it because it's last minute. So he's noticed I haven't stepped out. So he's not seen me do that. So he's not thinking, okay, he's going to try and overtake me. I've surprised him. Plus I've got in front of him. And now I'm blocking him because I'm going so slow. He's like, well, like frustrated. You can't get past me. You can't go around me because it'll take too long to go around me. We're now both here accelerating. So, um, and after that, it became something that I just, I would often do, as long as the, the track surface was fine doing that. And the corner was right for it. And I, it was something that I found very um, effective, but it was a, it's not a taut way to break. Um, but Max was up the current world champion. He, he does it a lot, apparently. So, and, um, so this, this is super interesting to me in terms of a longevity principle, <clears throat> because you know, by sacrificing speed for, uh, or apex speed for position and, and this concept of breaking late <clears throat> um, and putting yourself by, nat by nature, of, it, it, and please correct me if I'm, if I'm misunderstanding this, but it seems like you're using angle uh, to position yourself, even though, though someone else is faster than you, you're using angle to position yourself and timing of your, of your breaking and, and breaking late to get yourself in a position that's actually in front of the person that's faster and thereby uh, essentially causing the person behind you or, or the, the, the people behind you to move at your speed. And this is, this is really interesting when it comes to uh, just the, the, the concept of longevity, because I think so, so much in our culture, you know, I, I would, as a, as a kid growing up around my parents, uh, martial arts masters, uh, and then starting to train very seriously myself, uh, especially in my teens, I start to see and feel in my body the, the value of the longevity practices. And I'm like, oh my gosh, if I, if I just keep this up for a really long time, I'm going to get to a point where I'm watching you know, folks who are, are moving faster, doing, doing things that, that I, you know, on one side, I'm like, oh, I wish I could go with that speed, but I don't know how to do that yet, or I'm not proficient in that yet but if i keep on doing this play the long game i'm essentially going to be in a position that uh they may not be able to maintain with their their fast game um so it's i i'm 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 hoping that i'm getting the the, the right gist of this um because it's it's it sounds very very similar to to my, my journey in the martial arts but also to again uh the the creating the gap concept and preparedness meaning opportunity, uh, just continuing to prepare uh, and just knowing that, okay, I'm on the right path. I'm going to keep doing my thing. And eventually the world will catch up. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, what I noticed with you, Jam, is that you had that intuition um, with real world and you had that, the, 
cross-pollination of skills from what you did in Tai Chi, et cetera, was applied to real world. And for me, so stepping into my professional you know, uh, work career um, very briefly is I had all these skills. So I had all these, you know, from driving, I think, I think sports and, and team sports and stuff when you people are young is, is it just gives everyone such strength as they move past college and into the real world. And it just gives you, teach you so much about having respect for your teammates and you know, competition. Please connect, connect us to, from, from the, the pro racing and pro squash world to, yes, to I will do, yeah. the, 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 the achievements in media. That, that'd be great. So, so I basically had always, um, while um, any free time I had, I'd always enjoy filming um, different things. Um, and drones went into, I was filming the cars quite a lot, uh, different cars at practice. And um, when I kind of came to the end of my, my racing career in the UK, um, which means I didn't make it F1, um, which is a lot of politics in it. And, you know, um, they have low tolerance of, of your success, for example. So if I had a, if I'm someone that built up to the sport, up to the limit, um, there's maybe another point you actually you're like, John. But um, obviously the fast way around a circuit, you know, you, you build your speed up, right? So you don't, you don't go into a corner and throw it in there, you'll, you'll, you'll take your cautious and find where that limit is you know, um, and build yourself. And then, and then next time you can break a bit later and then a little bit later, a bit later until you find that kind of optimal point that's that's going to give you the maximum lap time. Um, some drivers have a natural gift. I don't have it. Other drivers did and do, um, and which they know the limit all the time. And they'll go on a track and within two laps, they'll be, put, they'll be putting in the fastest laps all weekend. The same as you know, that, that, map, that lap time will match the fastest laps that are achieved by everyone all, the whole lap, whole weekend. And all the cars are the same at, the, the, at, these, at these point in all the junior categories. So it's really, there's no excuse to being as fast as one else. If you look at Formula 2 and Formula 3, there'll be 30 cars or something in Formula 3, and they're separated by seven seven tenths of a second from first to twentieth for example so you know which is um and they have drilled holes in the rear wing right nine holes and you can adjust your rear wing three different ways that's it um and that's the only change they can make so it's down to the driver to then make a difference which is what it should be is you know it's the best drivers get through and move up um it's not always the truth because money comes money comes into it like one of the guys bought a team that's a bit of a one good way of doing it, and he had a Russian dad who had a lot of money. Uh, uh, but um, besides that, um, yeah. So, so I went. I recently I moved to America. I got a contract with Porsche um, to drive um, for the for Porsche in Atlanta for the nine elevens and the Carrera Cup. So I drove for them for four years. And during that time, I really got into filmmaking a lot more. Got better drones. I was filming the cars on the experience days and hovering around. It's probably the airport. So if you're a little bit careful, but um. I'm flying them around, and then I, and then Porsche let me do a few commercials for them, and uh, and that was good because it kind of got me. Obviously, it was a great first client to put up, and I got more into that. And then applying the same principles I learned through squash to how you escalate, you know, the, the politics of of uh, politics of racing and stuff, and how you can network and everything else because you want to be signed by a team or right race for a certain driver. You know, you um. You get you and networking is key so you, so you start doing that in media world when you're talking you're saying you're approaching this from very much a sports perspective um and that mentality and that just just for me fortunately it was the right time with drones and everything else i was just, I was just very interested in very authentic narratives uh, focusing on the key authentic narratives that represent a brand and sticking to that very strongly and and then using 
technology like drones and stuff was always into that um, um i think that's being an only child as well creativity came out of me being spending a lot of time alone because if i wasn't very creative i'd be very bored very quickly so i keep myself entertained by thinking of things to do <laughs> um and uh that came that's why i think of that different move to get past someone in racing because i'm thinking okay this isn't working what else can i do my mind's always just going and that's a burden sometimes because i can't sleep <laughs> but um uh and it's also a burden if i'm given a podium because i don't show up um <laughs> so sorry you can jump in whenever you want but no but it's um so that creativeness was able to come through and i was able to position it in a way that and I do this in racing as well and with squash, put myself in another person's shoes, which is a key thing for anybody, anything they do. If you can empathize with someone, if you can put yourself in that position of what they're doing, okay, what what are they thinking right now? What's their looking at their tires? How are they driving? How are they balancing their car differently? You know, how okay, now they're taking a different route into this corner. Why is that? And try to put yourself in their headspace. I would apply that in business to, okay, what does this client want? And then I would just tell them. I'd answer it before they asked it because I'd work out what they want. Okay. I'd say, oh, this is what I'm thinking. And they'd be like, this is exactly what I want. And it was so easy. It just happened like that. So they would take that kind of practicing Porsche with the, with the drones and stuff to then build a company around it. Um, and then that was acquired by an ad agency ultimately, who I then worked for and ran a division of uh, four and a half years. And then, and then I then worked at EY. Which uh, whose culture um, I didn't. Uh, it wasn't too bad. I didn't. I just wasn't my culture. It was what the main reason I left. We had a four million dollar deal with Formula One um, that I'd, I'd uh, brokered and got signed. And then I was told by Audit Independence that we couldn't work with them because uh, we'd given them some advice three years ago. So I had to go back and tell them, "Sorry, guys, we're still over signed and everything, but we can't do it." And that kind of broke me a little bit. I was undone. <laughs> So uh, I worked my way out and then I would have to pay my, my sign-on bonus back. But, uh, and then started my flat out, which um, uh, is when uh, I spent time at the assemblage, which is applying the, applying the same principles of, of driving to advertising for, and representing driver, young drivers who need money. Um, but Formula One drivers are very expensive and they're very tied into the teams and they've got regulations around what they can do. And stuff. Lots of brands already, rep, already rep, sponsor them. But younger drivers don't. I mean, and they need money. And they like some of the drivers that went from F2 to F1 did spend six hundred thousand pounds pounds a day on tires alone for testing. Because the more you practice in that car, this is the same car for everyone, the better you'll be at the next race. So any bit of money I can get for a driver that's in F2 or F3 would be like you know, a godsend for them. So um, I partner with brands. I, a really the best example is is Moleskin. Right, Moskin had these um, pen plus books where everything you write, it Bluetooth syncs to the cloud through your phone. So drivers make notes every race. A bump on, a bump on the exit at turn three, you know, you know take a you know, turn five and fifth gear, um, whatever it may be. So they slightly right on the entry to turn six. All these little notes I make and uh, you know, throughout the race weekend, the following year they go back to the same circuit, they'll reference the notes from the year before. And they'll use that as a baseline to, and it goes down to gear ratios and stuff as well, which is too technical. But the point is, if they forgot their book, they wouldn't have their notes. Now, not all the creative was based on them being idiots, idiots, but, um, you know, but uh, their coach should look at the notes from 2,000 miles away because it's on the cloud. 
they could make come in with suggestions. Um, so it became this, uh, and I just pitched it to Molson and just went to them, and they were like, we love it. And six Instagram videos came out of it. So, you know, we were on my drivers, which gave him a bit of money. And, you know, and, uh, and so, again, it's that authentic narrative. If it isn't authentic, people won't get it. People won't grab onto it. And that's why a lot of our real world is created by real people doing real, doing actually, you know, authentic stuff they're passionate about, adding to this bigger picture that, that is so cohesive and works. That I think is just so, is what Hollywood needs. Right. I, I want to bring this back to to because like I completely agree with you in terms of the the uh, the the value of authenticity, of course. Um, and uh, you know, I, I did some writing this past weekend. On, it's on my latest Medium post of the concept of the positivity model, and uh, that that TikTok, as an example, um, has has really uh, positioned itself in a way that that streaming platforms can't right now because of of the energetically the content on TikTok is is often called very positive and it's not positive because it's happier per se but because of the clear channel that TikTok has provided between us as users and the creator we're watching we can feel their heart we can, and that in and of itself, being able to have the clear channel to the creator's heart gives a positive feedback, uh, po creates a positive feedback loop for us, whether it's happy or sad or, or whatever it might be, the, the voice, we can feel it versus something created by committee that uh, can essentially take the heart of the creator and disperse that channel, exactly. Uh, and make it more challenging for us to actually find the 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 true creative essence of that thing we are watching. So therefore, yeah. uh, the any streaming platform full of content created by committee, by corporation, by studios, uh, packed on on your your uh, your home screen versus opening up TikTok and just getting the the that creative clarity. And Marvel, I think, did a great job of identifying that. Uh, and saying for Spider-Man No Way Home, saying that, hey, you know, we're going to make a story that that's about uh, rather than defeating the villains, actually healing the villains, and then drawing a line between that narrative and the TikTok community and saying, hey, you know what, let's, let's do our best to break the fourth wall a bit and allow the users to feel like these characters are, are with them. They're very accessible, et cetera. So I, do, I you know, it's a good example. Yeah. Where real world is, I believe is, is, is a few steps ahead in terms of storytelling and, and actually uh, connecting the story, bringing all of us into the story rather than still being audience members. If you look at the way TikTok is, is, uh, is uh, marketing their, their, their uh, platform to advertisers, et cetera, it's still engagement. It's still um, selling your product to to fans and having fans sell your product for you by making fan videos. They're not really giving fans the agency to be the cre the core creators in the same way that Real World hopes to, or is uh, uh, through our first show, Justice for Hire, saying, "Hey, you are your character. You own your character. We are building together." But like you know, it could be. Guru Merkaba's character, or Tai Chi Wonder's character, or Elixir's character that becomes a, a, a you know a, their own um, you know major franchise, but 
uh, we're all any character that could happen for any of them, and it could be anybody's. Um, it's ma- and it's massive, and I think so. I just jump into a bit of that, but to agree with you on that, I think it's massive. I think especially in the culture today, people are almost some people are afraid to say their opinions because of so many divisions across uh, just America, obviously. Um, but um, I think um, through content, we can create narratives that are representative of us in a way that doesn't that doesn't conflict with people. You know, I think a lot of that. You know, designed by committee, stuff like that. You know, absolutely hate, you know, detest it. And we would always have a client version and then director's cut of most of the videos we did. I mean, L'Oreal wrote it once and they wanted to change a scene, a shot from, they said, oh, could, could that be, could we do some post, post production work on that? And that could be a nighttime shot. I was like, no, no shot in the day. We can reshoot you if you want to pay some more, but no, we can't do that. Um, you know, but they, they, you know, because someone just woke up in a meeting all of a sudden. He's like, oh, I did. And they literally took screen grabs and sent me a brand new, um, a brand new storyboard to cut to. And it's like, well, we can't do that. It doesn't work that way. But, um, you know, and, and you know, with clients, I'm always like, you know, what do you, we'll do our best. But, um, you know, uh, well, um, but that can't be possible. We'll do, we'll do what we can. Uh, but we'd always, 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 always have our own director's cut. We'd go on our website. And they would have their cut because we weren't tied to the success of the video. As long as the client was happy, they'd rehire us, right? So what they did with it afterwards is, is up to them. But I think uh, again, it's that and it's cover your ass mentality. A lot of it. Um, they want to say to their boss, "Oh, I did this thing. I made that one change. It was really important to focus this one part of the product." It's just like, just shut up. <laughs> get get people interested in the brand. Get people interested in in, in the product or what you're doing. And then the brand of them, the products will sell themselves if they're good enough. Well, so, you know. yeah, I want, I want to, I mean, I, I want to connect your, um, uh, I, I, oh, Alex joining us, who's, who's wanted to talk to you for a while. Um, I've, I want to connect these, these, these concepts together because the heart, of course, is, is of utmost importance. It's our compass to the world. It's, uh, you can call it intuition, um, but being able to, or the compass component of it being the intuition, but the heart itself still being our, our clear channel to the world, or and ideally doing everything we can to uh, remove the blockages um, between our heart and and in any interaction. And it seems that you utilizing, uh, you know, your heart and these skill sets that you started training as as a as a kid. Uh, both in racing and in in squash, helped you develop uh, essentially tools, the tools that allow you to then apply those same skill sets to other areas. So you took your your squash training, applied it to racing, took your racing uh, uh, experience and and, an ability to network, et cetera, and apply that to media. You then took your, your, your media expertise became the lead investor of real world. And, <laughs> but I mean, and, and did so many other things as well. Uh, and so did and, you too, and, that's what, and you too with real world. That's, you know, it's the thing everyone has, so the background, you can, if, you, if you're introspective enough and look at what you've learned from different areas, you can take those elements out and, and you know, you can easily apply them to what you're doing in a different space. Um, I think that's what makes the strongest people in, in any, any industry, I think, that, that have that dexterity to, to learn from the past. I think I said to you before, like if ever I'm in a discussion with someone or a disagreement with someone, um, 
I much prefer much I much I prefer to be wrong than right because I learned something from being wrong. Um and I, you know, typically it normally it's my girlfriend that's right, is normally right. Well she's always right actually. Um so I learn a lot. But um but yeah, it's uh um it's it's definitely something that I think if you can transfer those skills from different disciplines and apply them like you've done with your world, I think that's what impressed me the most when my first when we were first reconnected again. Um and uh and that's why you know everything you've got everything the everything that you're hitting with real worlds all the all the approaches you have right now i think are spot on just what everyone needs i think that's why it's going to grow it's why it's grown it's why it's going to continue to grow and be a success no I, I, that's I, why i'm here uh, <laughs> I, you know I, I want to open it up now to even more uh, uh questions that anyone might have in the spirit of of uh, applying skill sets that that we might have in any particular area of our life to another area for for the greater goal. Ryan, something you said last week is that you always have the long term goal in your head, and I think that that's so important for for each one of us because there's there's something that we're all here to do, and um, and to be able to identify that and keep that feeling in our hearts and in our minds. Um, and sometimes we need help. Uh, to 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 nudge us back onto that path and to to optimize especially our performance on that path. So, um, any questions anyone might have for Ryan, uh, please let let's uh, let's go for it. And oh, hold on, let me fix that. I, I were here pin myself by accident uh, for that. Uh, but Ryan, I had I had one one in particular that I want to 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 ask of you, um, and that is <clears throat> with for, as a as a director, as a because you know Ryan has produced, he's direct directed a, a, a written content, a, edited content, even gave me a little hack on an animation uh, last week because I'm doing doing a little action figure animation with my son. So, <laughs> um, as a director, how have you how how has it been for you uh, taking your <clears throat> Taking the the ability to to manage stress at a high level, uh, and <clears throat> you've talked about different scale. I know I, you know if you watch, you go to ryancarrison.com or flat out uh, uh, flat out's website. Uh, you'll see the caliber triple A triple A uh, uh, content that he's producing for some of the world's biggest brands, um, especially on those larger shoots. How do you manage the stress of Let's say a, a global brand on with you as the as a as a as a creative lead. How do you manage that stress down to to uh, shot per shot, calling action, calling cut on a shot, and while also dealing with the client? I'm very interested. Yeah. In that. Um, honestly, I think um, a lot of it is I I don't you know especially when you have your own business, you have lots of clients. You know. Um, it's not like they're your boss or something. If you if that client if it goes badly, like and you don't work with that client again, there's another client. So there's a little bit of like, yeah, whatever, you know. And there's a little bit of you know, this is all we can do. Now that's the extreme, and that's not the approach for everything. But it but it's a little bit in the back of mind. So that's why you know, because at first I get very uptight with it and very stressed out. But um, then I reach that point of say, well, it's not worth it. I'm trying to spend too much time on this and not on important things in life too stressed out with that. So a little bit of a detachment from it in that respect, like, hey, look, I'm going to do my best job here. Um, and if it doesn't work out well, there's more clients, more fish in the sea. I mean, that was kind of a worst case scenario. But the, the, the way that I kind of learned to do it was 
hiring the right, having the right team around you, right? So I'd have a, let me co-direct things because I have a, another director that was much more used to working on sets with teams. Um, so a lot of terminology and stuff that, that, that obviously I knew too, but he'd have a much more detailed, comprehensive analysis, you know, a grasp of that. You know, so he'd be able to talk to the gaffers or the grips whatever, and say, oh, I'll flag that light, whatever they were like. Mm-hmm. Whereas I'd just kind of sit back and sometimes the crew wouldn't even know I was, a direct, I was a, one of the directors. You know, they wouldn't even speak to me or they barge past me or something, not knowing I'm the other kind of their boss. <laughs> and, you know, because I don't, I don't really, you know, I wouldn't, I'd just say to the other guy, I said, this is what I want out of the scene or something. And he'd, okay, okay, guys, can you get this thing? And he'd, and maybe the person they go to. So a lot of them probably didn't think I even existed. <laughs> so it was kind of a creative director kind of role. But I'd, um, so, so that, that was a key thing, having a good team around you. Um, and you let your your DP, who you trust a lot, you know, you, you let him choose his assistant director. His, you know, assistant right. I have to ask a question about that. Yeah. that. That's a very, that's a very, very big point, especially for filmmakers. Um, you're saying that you made the decision to bring on a co-director. Is that, am I, am I understanding this correctly? So, yeah. So I, I hired another director just for the volume of work anyway, but then a lot of the projects we do, we'd end up co-directing because he was just, he was, he, he, he'd gone for, I went, to, I went for school, I went to college for economics and maths, um, <laughs> of all things. Um, and, uh, you know, he went to art school and proper like, you know, drama school and did cinematography stuff and all that things. So he was knew everything you know, from a film crew perspective and did film school. Um, and I, I picked up. So even though um, there were my concepts I'd done, it was very much a, a collaboration of his skills, using him uh, to communicate with the team. He was also a lot more personable. So, you know, to the point it was a bit annoying, actually, sometimes like, we'd have a client come over and I'd, I'd go and get the fridge filled up with like, all different waters and stuff. And, he'd, and they'd come in and he'd be like, oh, hi, guys. He'd be Australian. Like, hi, guys. He'd like, go, want some drinks. Like, oh, so nice of you. Thanks so much. I was like, bastard, I've got, I got those drinks. You know, but um, but that was his role. He was very personal. He, he talked to the crew. The crew respected him, you know, and I didn't need that. I didn't, I didn't need that from the crew to come to me and say, you know, look at me, look up at me. That's not what I was after. It was them just being in an environment they could do the best they can. Um, and he could speak to them and he could he could speak to them well on a level and they'd like him a lot. And uh, he's got a lot more friends than me. Um, but, but that's okay because it was, it was the way it worked best. But I think, um, but yes, yeah, so that was one way of, uh, of, you know, that I found, um, I found it very important to, 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 to step into that realm and be comfortable. But I think the, um, Ryan, the other uh, way is just preparation. Oh, sorry. Andrew's got a question for you. Oh, okay. Oh, I'll ask this really quick, just preparation. And I was, I came from editing background first before filmmaking. So I was, I had first had an attitude, I'll fix it in post, I'll fix it in post. Um, and the more we did, I was like, okay, we can't do that all the time. Uh, so, and, you know, that's where another, another guy on my team who had experience in that taught me, uh, you know, and he planned things out a lot and we'd have storyboards done, everything done beforehand. So it was, you know, it's really just, ex- you know, shoot when we shot on the day we're doing production, we're just executing on what's really been planned and approved. So that was, um, those are really great kind of skills to have. And then little tricks I get, like I'd always hire like a PA if we flew somewhere for a shoot, a PA that had a car. So he'd drive us around. So we're not renting a car and a PA knows where he's going. Um, and little things like that save money. My client's happy, you know, we get, you know, and, uh, and, you know, it, it, little things like that I'd work out would be useful. Um, so that's how I kind of built, that's how I made that transition and get into a crew of big, a lot of people 
without that experience um, uh, and produce what I wanted to do out of it, get the, get the products out of it I wanted to do and then and post to do what we want. Right, and I can't stress enough how, <clears throat> how important it is to, to highlight that so many directors, so many people that want to be directors uh, would have a huge problem being in a, in, a, in a creative lead position and then having somebody else come onto their ship as a co-director. And <clears throat> that is, it speaks a lot to anyone's character that uh, can, can recognize that, hey, uh, there is somebody else that should be here next to me. Um, yeah, it's uh, better, better uh, communicating. Yeah, and yeah. I, I don't want to name names, but there's some of my favorite uh, musical artists who have become um, music, directed some of their own videos, uh, could have benefited from having another director on set with them. And it's actually from those, from watching those very public mistakes, and that many people may not think that they're mistakes, um, but for me as a, as a director, I'm recognizing the the faults of my own ego in somebody else or the faults of the ego it's almost it's almost that steve jobs thing of being the conductor of the orchestra thing it's like you know if uh if you have a ferrari and something goes wrong i want someone that's only dealt only fixed ferraris their entire life not mm -hmm. someone that fixes ferraris and dishwashers and you know microwaves and you know and anything else but someone that's every has, has probably come across this problem mm -hmm. before because that's their expertise and it's not my expertise, I'm doing other things. My expertise is to bring these things together. So to respect that role and then collaborate and let them have their space and give them the environment they need to operate to their maximum. And then you can step back and they will deliver for you. And it's not, it doesn't take anything off away from me. Um, it empowers them. They want to work with you again. Um, and it really just, it, it just works. It's just a, a, a mixture of, um, of a work environment that just, just works for everyone. That's that's so beautiful, man. It took me years to learn that lesson. Uh, these days, if I'm in front of the camera, I do my best to have a, a co-director there uh, guiding me because I know I, I for some some people are great at uh, uh, being in front of the camera and still directing. I feel like I need another set of eyes. Uh, and it, it like I said, it took me years. It took me do, publishing comic books to understand the value of creating uh, a nurturing ecosystem for other directors because film school is very competitive and uh, directors are very competitive. And um, so, so I, I, and I love working with, with directors now and being able to say, Hey, you know what? Like, let's, let's just all collaborate on, on bigger That's pictures. Right. Stuff. Yeah. So it's, it's, uh, it's I, kudos to you on that one. <laughs> I, took, I, I took a lot, I took a lot from um, like skateboarding and snowboards. You watch those guys and they're cheering each other on. Because uh, you know they're, they're called a pipe and they're they're cheering each other on because they're not they've done their they've had their go whatever now they're not what they do doesn't impact what this next guy is going to do um, so they're cheering him on and he does a good move they're like yeah that's awesome they bang the boards and, and I took a lot from that I was like you know what yeah there's, there's it's a very competitive landscape and there's a million filmmakers and there's a, but there's also a million jobs to be done so differentiate yourself in a way that that you know you deliver the best product. And you know, and if and if someone else does a great film, you should say that's an awesome film, great work. Let's collaborate on something. Not like you know, bastard. You know, you got that job. I'm gonna beat him to the next one. I'll take him down. That's never that negativity has never really been there. You know, positivity is key to bouncing back from any failures you have yourself in career. If something doesn't work out, it's key to getting the best out of people around you. That's that's beautifully said. Man, I, I have one one last question. Um, 
and this this question is really uh, connected to to the heights you've gotten to as a as a uh, uh, producer, production company owner. Um, what is if you could share one story that uh, where you're you're working for a, a a large client, and what is the most the most challenging? How have you solved the the most challenging problem uh, in, in that you've experienced, like working for for a large client? Because, and I think this is helpful for our, our justice for hire community as well, because as the, the as time goes on, uh, we're all going to be leveling up our production. It's just simply what's going to happen with, with the real world ecosystem and, and how we are collaborating. Um, right now, uh, we're, we're in a place where everyone, a lot of people are shooting on their phones, but some folks are shooting on, on more professional cameras. But as our ecosystem builds, we will have more formal productions. We will have more people from the community stepping up as directors and as producers of these formal productions. There will be more responsibilities. This is a multi-year plan. So a story like this, I feel like, can help us all as a community understand what goes through the mind of an expert problem solver. Because at the end of the day, that is that is one of the things that I would list on your resume. So <laughs> yeah. Okay. So we did have one client. Um, well. I say one client, it's under the three in one client. Um, it was ABC. Um, and um, uh, we'd, we'd had a, I was, when I was working at the agency, at the advertising agency, and uh, we had like a, well, I had like a capabilities call with the head of sales for ABC. So they would do all of the branded work that was like shown on like Jimmy Kimmel or like Good Morning America. Um, and they were, he's naming names. I want to name a lot of names. I'm going to tell you what we're doing there. Um, and um, and they and they obviously they heard us out. It was a great conversation, but you know they, they've got their roster of people they work with, whatever. And we were obviously bottom of the list. Um, and I got a call once. You know, it was in a, uh, September, and they had a job that every other person in production company had turned down. So I was the last on the list, um, which I don't care about. It's a chance, right? And it was that they'd produce six commercials in six different cities. One of them was had to be done in Spanish. Uh, for Cigna Insurance. And it was about getting a checkup once a day. So they're like, we need a celebrity in each city. Um, and then a real doctor has to be a real doctor. Um, and um, and we've got a producer uh, deliver it and it needs to be aired on TV in three weeks' time. Um, the budget was like $70,000 per commercial. I was like, yeah, we can do it. No problem. And in the middle of the, and at that time I was also doing uh, the Victoria's Secret Fashion Show. I was flying to Paris, I think, for that. And then uh, we were doing the NFL so every weekend. I was filming the yeah, different NFL stadiums. Um, I was like, yeah, yeah. I didn't have the bandwidth for it at all. But I was like, yeah, we can do that. And I, um, and I called up. Uh, so I hung up and I called up my producer, Liz, who, who worked for me for a while and she had a baby. So she was at home. Uh, and she would do freelancing stuff for me. And I was like, I've got a project for us. Um, I said, it's, Bit of a challenge, I was like, but you'll be fine. I said, um, just do whatever you need to do. Like, I'm not going to be, you know, I'll, I'll help you out as much as you need me to. But I'm not going to call you and ask for an update. I'm going to trust you to do it. Um, if anything goes wrong, blame me. I'll, take, I'll get on the call and take the heat. And said, so if you got to spend money, spend money. Doesn't matter. Just get it done. Um, and um, we hired a uh, another director um, who, for the first shoot we did, it with, it was it's on my website. I think it's with Joey Fatone from NSYNC and he takes taxi driver's job where he is a taxi driver for a day and he has three different funny challenges in the day that where like a guy turns up with loads of a girl has loads of balloons comedic episodes 
while the taxi driver goes off to the doctors um gets his yearly checkup and has you know the whole Sigma insurance speech um but um and uh so like, okay fine so we do the call sheet we get you know they they had drivers own lined up already that was the only one they did the rest of them we had to find uh we had to do it in houston uh, miami um dc because it was in spanish um and dallas somewhere else i want to say dallas was near maybe it was dallas maybe dallas as well but it was six in total so the new york one i can do the first half day which is the shooting with joe for tone because the first one it was the guy from NSYNC. I thought, oh, fancy that. That'd be fine. Nice to meet him. Uh, he was a lovely guy and really humble guy. No drama, no no ego with him at all. He was a really easygoing guy, which helpful. But uh, then there's, there's three guys then. Right, like, oh, right, nice to meet you. you know, where are you from? I was like, oh, we're from McCann Erickson. We represent, um, you know, um, Signal Insurance. I was like, okay, so are you, are you my client or ABC my client? Oh, no, you can report to us. We'll report to ABC. I was like, okay, so, so now I've worked out there's these three layers I've got to go through. So it's like, I got ABC and they go to Sigma, I go to McCann Erickson, they go to Sigma. So then it gets approved like down this chain. I was like, well, that's not going to make things quick, is it? But okay, that's my bad. Um, and um, the director that I, that I co directed the first half the day with, half day with, was a guy that was really great. He'd come over to me and I, I, I said to him, you do this, do this as much as you need to. Push me, push me. He came over to me and said, Ryan, we've got to do this shot now. We've got 10 minutes, we'll do it. We're going to get the storyboard done, the shot list. He's like, Ryan, you stop playing with that. We'll do this now. I'm like, okay, sorry, Dan, you're right, do it. You know, and uh, he was a, he was really a real, um, yeah, a real, I don't know what, uh, I don't want to say Nazi, that's a terrible thing to say. <laughs> but it was really strict, basically, about this. You know? And, you know, I'm paying him to do the job, but, you know, but that was, that was his job. So I have no problem with that. But um, so we get, so, We've got the shot done. They were very happy. But then they had to go to DC in two days' time and do it there. They had to find a, a local celebrity, then also supporting cast that weren't celebrities. In total, it was 170 vendors we had for that, that shoot. Um, uh, I know that because I was the one that had to, had to enter all the expense invoices into, into the system after it was done. But um, the big challenge was they would write to us and they'd be in DC, for example, all the, and all the McCann Erickson people being in DC, the creator has been approved. Uh, and the producer that I hired, Liz, great producer, um, the working for a while, she, she sent the call sheet out at like one in the morning because that's when she got the final approval for costume, for example. And McCann Erickson said, that, uh, you know, this is not good enough. We're getting the call sheet at, at one o'clock. I was like, okay, guys, everyone, can we just take a step back? We all know we're in DC. Right, we all know we're starting at eight o'clock. We're meeting at this place, right? So it doesn't matter that you got the call sheet at one o'clock. It doesn't matter, you know. It's a miracle the things they get done anyway. We had to produce taxi TV ads as well, um, just to add to the fun. And uh, and um, so it was just being realistic with the client in a polite way to say that. And and I was relaxed because I was like, look, we really are pulling off kind of what everyone else, every other person we went to before said no to. And um, there's one thing Liz couldn't, one, one of the shoots Liz couldn't do, we brought a different producer in, field producer in, who the head of sales ABC didn't like. And she's also a nervous Nelly. So she was like, really, she was like, oh, if this goes bad, I have to lose my job. And I was, I was like, yeah, you're not helping things right now. Uh, but, um, and, and she didn't like him at all. 
at all. So I remember getting off, of, I had to do an interview in LA with actually Drew Andrews, of all things. Um, I flew to LA for the day, got out, and I was in the Virgin, Virgin, uh, um, uh, Virgin America uh, lounge for two hours talking her off a cliff. Because she was like, oh, it's terrible. It's ter-. I was like, look, not much we can do now. They're in on the shoot. He gets a good job done. But it all came from an impression of they wanted to talk to him sooner than he was, re- he was actually going to be engaged for the project. He was walking on the street in Manhattan when he was on this call. So there was obviously background noise and that irritated us. So she kind of had it out for him to start with. But um, it all worked out in the end. But it was just, you have to stand up for yourself to some degree with some of these clients. That was a big, a big key thing. Um, and remain true to what your objective is, which is to get this thing shot on these days with these people and and trust the people, the team, the team you built. We had a very small team that did the job because we didn't need a big team. We had a, a producer and an assistant. And then, you know, the camera guy did his job, the director did his job, a camera assistant. Um, and, the, and the director was like an AD as well. So he kind of managed the set. Uh, and then I would just be there for the client and then massage the client, keep them happy. Um, and then we sense, you know, but the costume, for example, was like, okay, the main person made a red top that would go to ABC. They were like, yep, great. Now we go to McCann Erickson. Yep, great. And we go to Signal Insurance. Yep, great. So by the time we got it done, it was like, it would be one in the morning. So, you know, and they're complaining about that. I'm like, but guys, let's just be realistic. For this is a, you know, we're pulling off a lot here. Let's so everyone take a step back and realize that. And that, you know, if you want blue in the morning, we can change it to blue. It's not a big deal. We're meeting, we'll see you in six hours or seven hours time. We can chat about it then. So it was, it was basically the way to overcome that was just bringing everyone down to earth. And then I'd already thought how we can sell up the post-production, which was very easy done, which is we had one room, we made a one room, which everyone had three edit stations. There was a TV on the wall above every edit station. I had a couch and all McCann Erickson came in. And sat there, and we'd have one editor show a rough cut, and everyone have headphones on working on their own edits. And they would literally just look at one, watch that, give some feedback, but thanks, hey, carry on working, move to the next person, watch that video, give the feedback. Um, but okay, thanks, he'd get back to work, go to the next guy, feedback, thanks. Go out to the first guy, he's made the changes already. They're like, yep, that's it, that's it, that's good to go. Yeah, I like that, send that off to the client. And then go out to the next person and so on. And we got through those six videos very quickly doing it. Like we got it done in one day. And a taxi TV edit was just cutting it to four by three. So that was pretty easy. Um, just to, just to change that. But you know, the whole time still had this like it's called Mindy. <laughs> Nervous Nelly person. It was just just I'm gonna lose my job with this. I'm like, it's everything's fine, right? We've got all that. And even the Spanish one, which I haven't got a clue what they said, it seems to be going out going down well. So you know, um, it was a challenge. I put Liz, poor Liz, uh, under a lot of stress to produce. But but I said to her, I said, look, you know, and one one bit, one one error, one mistake with that, which is one change had to be done that um, I gave to the editor, and he didn't. He missed one change, and I remember we got on the phone. And there was like twelve people on the phone call. And I said, um, he said, do you have the that other edit? And I was like, but no, it's almost done. I said, but he missed one little small change. And this guy McCarrick just starts yelling at me on the phone. And uh, I just, just took the headset away from me. I was just like, okay, when he's done, I'll talk to him. And so he yelled, he yelled, yelled, and I said, look, I'm really sorry. I said, look, you know, I'd seen him been pushed a lot for this. I said, but, um, you know, still, it's our fault. So, you know, blame me. He's like, yeah, it's all well and good saying that, but it's me. I have to talk to the client. And I said, I understand that, but 
you know, we've pulled this off and we got it done. So, you know, we'll, we'll deliver that straight away and we do within the hour and then we can go from there. But apart from that, is there any other issues? I said, no, everything else is fine. But, you know, get that edit done. I was like, I said, no problem at all. Sorry about that. And move forward. So just being humble with it, calm, and just keeping everyone grounded by the fact that we pulled off six commercials in three weeks um, across six different cities, one in Spanish. <laughs> um, uh, was just, you know, um, and my team worked really hard on that and they got paid very well for that, which they should do. And they, and they were excellent. And I had minimal involvement in that. I just put out fires. I said, if you need anything, call me, I'll deal with it. If you need, if you need to rent this thing, just do it. Just do it. I authorized anything. Do it. You have the impact. And I, I never once called them for an update. I said, you won't hear from me. I said, if you need me, I'm there, but I'm not going to bother you. I trust you. Do it. Right. And that worked. I, I want. I want to. Uh, I mean, what you just, how you handle that, is a great example of of gentle strength, and I think that it's 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 a shame that 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 so many of us have to deal with people who might, um, who might bring that that type of energy to to our our collaborations in any any aspects of life. Uh, I, I do my best to, to stay away from that energy. And when I have experienced that, it, it normally pushes me away very quickly or causes me to, uh, I, I've had to learn how to, how to, to not only stand up to that energy, but sometimes to actually uh, directly uh, challenge it. Uh, but that being said, yeah, sorry. Um, I, 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 you know, I say this because so many people on this call are, are part of our team and we're, we're, we're expanding and growing our family now that um, my, my hopes are that, that we can always remain um, uh, loving and constructive in the way that we talk to each other um, and, and do. Totally. Yeah, perspective. Yeah. Perspective I think, is key. Yeah. yeah as, as a team, as a whole, uh, it's, it's so important and it's just part of the way I, I personally want to live. Um, I, I'm, I'm never into, it's, it's very, very rare that I feel like uh, raising your voice to yell is appropriate because sometimes there, it is appropriate sometimes, but you know, it's not something to, uh, uh, to just be thrown around lightly when you're, when you're doing your best to, to, to create something together. Uh, Andre's got a, a, a comment or a question. More of a question. Thanks, Jen. Um, hi, Ryan. Thank you for sharing. I was just listening and never once I heard from your story that you played it safe and i just wanted to ask what would be the calibration point between playing it safe and going for the crash if it was to apply something from squash or racing into your business life a question actually um thank you yeah because that, that was really kind of setting the setting the tone of um who you are and then not who messed with in a kind of a way but and that would only really in a business world kind of show itself with maybe the yelling part, which I don't really do. But um, I think really, you know, I never, people that teams that work, probably the only way it showed itself is with teams I worked with, I never really, I never got cross with them if they made a mistake. Right? I'd rather make them, I let make mistakes because there's only way they're going to learn. If I sit over their shoulder and watch them, they're going to just be fed up. Right? And I'm, I'm not, I have no interest in doing that. Also, I'm just, I'm just bored. I would be so bored. So, <laughs> Uh, yeah, rather than, than do it, you know, we did a whole TV series for um, uh, thirty minutes episodes, and for um, uh, I forget network now, in the ABC family anyway. And um, I didn't watch one episode, and I was the post production supervisor on that. 
and it was all post-production because it was all self-shot. <laughs> but I had a great editor. So, yeah, you know, and he would he'd be there without me saying anything until four or five in the morning with the director working on it. Uh, so what am I going to do? Watch it and say, actually, guys, did this right. No, they were good. They didn't know what they were doing. I, didn't, I still haven't watched one episode. I'm sure it was great. <laughs> they commissioned a second season, so we did that. So that was good. Uh, but, um, um, I th- you know, I'd only really get annoyed with people if they didn't... Um, if they didn't admit to a fault or a problem, if they made a mistake, they wouldn't admit to it. And I think that comes down to understanding what you're doing. So I understood how to, any part of it, like one guy was, I was in LA once and there was a guy who was, was you know, rotoscoping or he was cutting out something in, in After Effects. And he said, he wrote me, he's like, oh, I, can't, I can't do that. It's not, no, that's not possible. I was like, yes, it is. Yes, it is possible. I was like, this is how you do it. Don't, don't try and play me off as not knowing what, do it you know i know what hand do this and this is how you do it it was like, okay and it was clearly he just couldn't be bothered to do it it was very clear that was the only times i get a little bit annoyed people was when they showed that kind of that kind of mentality um but i wouldn't yeah you know, i'd say i know my stuff and you know i know what you're going through this and um yeah let's get it done you know how to do it if you would tell you how to get it done let's say you do it now you go do it. You got it, and uh, and they realized they couldn't bullshit bullshit me, <laughs> and that was kind of key. So understanding kind of to answer your question, I think it probably crash or no crash, just understanding what <laughs> what level of what level of um, pushing people you need to do and how you have to do it, um, and sometimes just showing your experience and showing that you know what they're talking about, so they can't trick you is enough um, in that circumstance. Right. If that answers your question. Uh, yeah no i just wanted to so it's acknowledging the other people's expertise but not undermining or undervaluing your position of authority as the subject matter expert no yeah and and they tried to kind of i could tell i knew it was laziness from them and it was a detailed thing to to rotoscope right they go around and put these keyframes in around a certain object so they could get rid of a, a background whatever it was a lot of work. I've done that for a, a slow motion video. I shot like 120 frames a second, and one of it went wrong, so I had to do it for like, like 15 seconds of it, which um, almost workload or anything. I knew what he was doing, so it was like, yeah, it was laser. So almost like, and you can do it with clients where everyone knows how to do it, but clients that don't know better, you know, I'd often tell my assistant to say, "I'm on set today." I'm not here. I don't know I'm on set today. You know, <laughs> if I don't want to speak to them that day. Um, so you can pull the wall over because I with little white lies every now and then. But when someone tried to pull over me, someone on my team, uh, by trying to put because he didn't think I knew about it, then I'd just come forward and say, look, look okay, look, I know what you're trying to do. Let's call it out. So we'll be real here. And look, if, you, if you're too tired to do it or your other issues, that's fine. Let's discuss those. If it's if not, then this is how you do it. And send me the final version when you're done. <laughs> that was it. It was just all it took. Thank you. That's that's. Uh, it seems like a super gracious uh, uh, principle of connecting thought, word, and deed, and having that be a uh, uh, very much a a uh, foundation for the interactions, Brian. Yeah, and also if ever I didn't really have to, but ever you do have to get strong with someone or or shadow them if you if you never are that person and then one time you are it makes that so impactful mm, yeah 
Um, well, I think that I'm that's. Not, I wouldn't like to do that. Okay, I never. I always try and circumvent that and see things as they are and try and put myself in their shoes. And my mate was sure that's it. We never, it never got to that point. But if it did, then I could I could step up and just exert myself in a way that you know not wouldn't want to do, but I'd do it. Um, mm. And uh, it carries so much more power. The fact that this this person's very calm, all of a sudden is like, oh God, I really have pissed them off. That's, that's I, I think it's really I mean connecting that back to to some of the other ideas you shared uh, uh, previously in terms of like creating the creating the gap creating that uh, what, what Andrew was asking about in terms of that that uh, that persona that hey you know like this is like he's going to go for it uh, and the strength associated with that but I also think that the same strength will also uh, allow you to recognize when someone has lost control because I, I would I would consider somebody who is yelling for no good reason in a meeting, um, someone who is is dealing with challenges. And underlying issues. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and dealing with, with, with essentially uh, uh, something that is, if I address that <clears throat> in a public forum, um, I could actually be, a, I could be removing some of the optimization that I'm looking to, act, to establish by, by nature of addressing that. And that if yeah. I do need to address that, it might be best on a on a one to one. Yeah, one to one. Um, so yeah. and it's that, a hard line. It's a hard line to balance. It's yeah. because some people you see it and it's uh, you, you you know. And, and I find it hard because I was like I always felt I was approachable, but then you know obviously I, I had a boss who was, a, who was the, the uh, CEO of the company and, you know, and I put myself in my shoes. I thought, would I go to him with this? I like, probably not. So even though I should be approachable, I was like, I understand their trepidation. That's the word, finally. <laughs> trepidation in coming to me. Um, and uh, But, you know, that's also, that director I mentioned, he was also, the, in as well as on set, he'd also relate to the other, the rest of the team in a way that was a colleague way. But we had a friendship, so he'd come to me and say, I think you should, you know, look after this, this guy's worked a lot really hard and he feels like he wants to get in space. So I'd always sit down and I'd say, thanks for that, because that, that feedback would never come to me. Mm. So, but I was able to then have one on one with him and say, you know, are we, are you work on the stuff you want to work on. You know, if it's not, you're, you're going to leave soon. You know? If you're making people do stuff that they don't enjoy, they're going to have a high turnover of staff, which won't help you very much. Mm. So, um, I'd always try and come and say, look, you know, nothing's wrong. If you want to work on more narrative stuff, then that's what I'll push you towards that. Um, you know, but um, that would always be the, the the key thing. So, that communication is very hard when people don't want to communicate things and people always don't always want to receive it either if it's your boss they don't want to know they don't really care about that i found that out you at you know they didn't really care just do this in the way it was i put too many hours in and they said you can take some hours off you put you log in too many hours and but we weren't building the client or i wasn't, wasn't being paid overtime it's just i'm just doing the work but i said can you can you cut back on that i was like okay i can work less if you want me to but <laughs> All right. Well, but anyway, so some people don't want to hear it, but um, no, yeah, I think it's a, it's a very key key thing to balance that, right? Right. We have two more questions. We have uh, uh, Guru Merkaba, aka Peoples, and we have Hockley Films. So uh, let's go with Guru first. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you. Um, yeah. Thank Thank you for sharing all this knowledge and stuff with us. Um, I did have a question about like in your business life, have you had uh, an idea or a business plan or something that you wanted to execute, but you had multiple modes of execution available for you? Like, and um, if you did, like, how did you resolve that? 
like I know in like in 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 racing and stuff, you'll you'll have a split decision. Like you don't know which one's the right decision to make, but like there's that there's that instinct. Yeah, uh, I think um usually it's been so it's normally been, and, and it can be frustrating. It can be like you have a creative idea for something, and it means oh this would be perfect for this brand, but you just can't get to the right person, right? We can't get to them because there's always layers. Um, and you decide, you know, how do you do it? So you, that's that's you try and tackle that in a different way, either doing a spec type thing and get into them, or just try and network to them. And you know, and there's there's tricks of the trade you can do with that and networking. You know, LinkedIn is a great tool for that. Um, just preferring you know people that also know them and they come in and you write them a note and you say, oh, so and so told me I should speak to you about this idea, which is complete bollocks, but you know, but. They'd be like, oh, I, I respect that person. Yeah, I'm friends with them. Yeah. Oh, did they? Okay, I'll listen. To and then, um, and then, the challenge for me always is condensing that idea into something that's short. Because <laughs> normally, I work. You know, I think in general, nuances are being lost everywhere in society, uh, and nuances are really important. They show people who they are. Um, they're what their intentions are. They show that you know, and sometimes the nuances in a creative or you know, a campaign can really make a difference between a heartfelt messaging uh, narrative, sorry, that gets the message across and something that's just like, just, you know, thrown to one side. So for me, it's been instinct and then whatever, you know, obviously after I've exhausted whatever, if I have the time to, with, with racing, you don't have time to, you have to go with your instinct, go for it and see what happens, how it works out. But when you have time, then obviously use your knowledge as best you can. But then if you, if, uh, you know, and then instinct is a big part of that. And then just um, the more you the more you try, the more different avenues you try, you're going to hit something. Amazing, thank you. Thank you. So we have uh, our last question is going to be from Alec, but first we're going to have uh, uh, I know it's getting late on the East Coast for you guys, um, but first we have uh, uh, Hockley, aka Nighthawk Films, uh, coming up. So let me just put you on a pin. There we go. Okay. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, so my question is, uh, how do you get funding that that uh, spiritually aligns with who you are? Because I, I read online that some indie film companies do like horror or porn, which thank God I, I've never had to do, but that doesn't align with me, so, especially in the downtime between the big projects, because some film companies between big projects, that downtime, they can lose a lot of money. And that's question one. And question two is, I've read online that some film sets, it, uh, after shooting, there would be like a frat house, there would be like a lot of drinking and, and drugs. And so I guess as the creator, you have to establish a standard, right? That it aligns with your morals. Yeah, I mean, um, good questions. I mean, but, you know, uh, to me, it's always been, um, our brand has been very important by what we do. And, you know, I wouldn't want to, the people I have working for, a couple of guys went to film school and stuff, you know, we went through our first, uh, my company was acquired by agency. The agency was a, uh, is a, our first two offices across the US. Um, and they did a lot of like press junkets and, you know, they do the uh, red carpet stuff and they wanted us to go and film the red carpet and then the Q and A with the actors after the screening. And then, um, and then cut a seven minute like B roll kind of you know, highlights that they'd send out to media to, to, so they could put it on news networks, right? Now, that kind of job isn't really 
what a guy that went to full cell university and studied film and stuff and is very creative and very good at what he does wants to do very often and especially when it's the day they tell us the day before um you know it, and they've been philly and they've go down there and then when they're down there they say oh why haven't you got two two radio mics and so we only said to bring one and it's like oh, so all we can do is mess this thing up you know, so <laughs> they've had the same vendor for years and all we can do is mess it up, right? Because the you know, and the agency's reputation with that with that studio has been going on for years. So you don't want to you don't want to be the person that's screwed it up. So you have that bit of a pressure, and um, and it's so, so he feels the pressure. He's not fulfilled creatively, um, and you know, there's only some amount of time they're going to put up with that. Um, plus, they're paying us like three grand, you know, and it's just not worth it. So I remember sitting down um, the start of the year with the CEO and the CFO and saying. I'm not going to say no to those jobs. I'm just going to price them high. And I priced them like 11,000 or something like that. And, and all but two people said no. So <laughs> we had like a bunch of requests for the year and I priced it and they'd go, no, that's too much money. About fine. Twice, two people said, okay, that's fine. And like cash back on those. It was so cheap. <laughs> so it was kind of like, oh, then you know, have a nice car. I drove down there, sit in the Ritz car and like that. It was great. They had a great time. Um, but it's focusing on what we did best, which is creating the, the proper kind of narratives that we wanted to do and upping our game. And we managed and at the end of the year, we, we doubled our profit target. Um, and we'd, um, and we'd, uh, in, and we did that in probably, I think two, uh, maybe, uh, let me guess, no, three fifths of the number of clients. Um, because it was, so much less, it was 162 projects, I think the year before, averaging around $5,000 a project. And then it went to so like six, 70 projects and averaging 25,000 each. So we just basically went out there saying, we're, we're here, we're not here. And then meant, and, then, and the first three months of that year, I was petrified because we, you know, we didn't get, we, you know, you, you, to make that jump is a big step. And, um, but I believed in the quality of the team and what we produced. And, and it was about pitching it. It was challenging me to pitch it right. And once, and it got about, we got one big job in the March, which freed a lot of pressure. And then, and then it snowballed and we got so much in. And it just went, it went crazy to the point where it was, I got bored pitching. Um, I was just, I pitched the head of Condé Nast um, content and uh, on the way, I was 15 minutes late. I stopped off at All Saints before I went there, got my new outfit for myself, which um, I'd have to get the job to get the <laughs> commission to pay for. Um, I threw away my clothes in the dumpster, went down there and I wasn't prepared, didn't do one bit of research. But within half an hour, I had a hundred grand job to do a partner with them for, with Amex. Because you just, I, I knew what they want to hear. You know exactly what they want to hear. So when, when you have the good the qualities there and you can, and they've seen it on your site, you show the right videos, they can go, wow, that's incredible. You know, and stuff that isn't that difficult to achieve, but it's just approaching it the right way. It really is. Um, it's so empowering that you can. You don't have to go down that route of doing the small jobs, but but in that, that in between period can be very, can be scary and can make you doubt yourself. And this is going to work because it's sink or swim at that point. But I just knew that if we carried on the way we were with lots with high volume, low revenue, we have a high turnover of staff, you know, and we're going to just about make our, our our profit target. And you know, and I want to be happy. Our website will be crap. <laughs> so it'd be for, you know, it'd be for like this is how this can Canon printer works. 
you know, which is not going to get us many jobs. So it was really just following what I believe, what I believed in, and what I believe my team could do. Um, and they did a great job, and you know, and it worked out really well. So, I guess in your second question, sorry. Uh, my second question was: uh, I read online that uh, some film sets after after. Oh yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, we're always we're always too knackered for that. We're always too exhausted. Okay, so <laughs> none of that went on. Yeah. So I guess it depends on um, the tone. If, if, if yeah, and I think it also. Yeah, I think it's also the difference between like a, a film set and then like commercials and stuff, right? So we have a client on set and stuff, and we've got deadlines to meet. And a, a film we have, we have like a 16 week block of filming. And, and people put in, I couldn't do it personally. So, yeah, 14 hour days for six, six weeks, eight weeks. These guys work so hard. And, you know, they've got one job and they can't, it's like, it's like a military thing. They can't step outside of their, their box, right? And maybe someone's job that day is to say, this, there's a cable here. And everyone that walks by say, watch out for the cable. Watch out for the cable. That's all they can do. And, you know, and to me, I like to have an open set where, like, someone can go to me and say, maybe you should try this type of different shot. Right? But that's, you can do that in that environment. You can't do that in a film set because they never want to do it as a director. And they never, nothing yet filmed. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, it's understanding that um, uh, dynamic. But, uh, no, we'd always... Uh, you know, I would be in a rush to get back to the get back to the office and you know get things packed away, charged up, and ready for the next day. So yeah, it's uh, you know our Christmas uh, Christmas party would go like to, I mean, Christmas probably do sleep no more. I was no, no no sleep. What was it called in New York? What was a theater show? Um, uh, sleep no more. Sleep no more. It was it was yeah. That was our that was our Christmas um that was our Christmas party, which is kind of actually a. It was a it's it's, it's, an, it's a solo experience. It wasn't a very Christmas because <laughs> they like let you off in the different floors and you just go exploring and you make a bit of what you will. We all end up at the bar at the end. It was a great time, but it was just we did a lot of out of the box stuff like that and like days where we were slow, didn't have much work on. We'd just go and there was a movie theater underneath us. I'd say our yeah, morning meeting on Monday. Say let's go watch a movie. And we're gonna say let's watch a movie, and that whenever that happened, every day, anytime I did that. Everyone would be there till 8, 9 p.m. I wouldn't have to ask them once. They'd just be there working, kind of ideas on stuff if they wanted to, because it motivated them. Um, so, which wasn't what I was aiming for at all. It was just like, okay, we haven't got a lot on right now. So, you know what? Uh, let's go watch a movie. Why not? I have a corporate card done. That's it. We'll go see the movie. Any people in the, in the cinema? But, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, um, and it worked. You know, those things, luckily, those things worked. Um, and that was partly because my boss, the CEO, was in Boston, so I could get over a lot of things. So long as I hit my numbers, I was fine. I I, I would just like jump in in terms of uh, and, and regarding a, a set. Oftentimes, you have insurance for that space as well. So I think that that's one of the things that that'll that'll help uh, if if you're dealing with any challenges with crew members who might be a little more lax after. Um, you know, the final shot of the day, it, it really becomes, uh, for, from my perspective, about one, who the producer is. It's really more of a producer's job than a director's job to make sure that the, the army moves. Uh, so you have all the soldiers there. It's like, hey, like cut, wrap. Okay, everyone, let's get off this set. Uh, and if you don't have that type of command on set from any, and sometimes your director, producer, et cetera, it may have to be you. 
Um, but if, if you don't have that type of command on set, you're going to get a lot of sloppiness and that sloppiness can, you know, for, for some people cost them their entire career. So it's, I think it's really, really recognizing. I think that's, that's something that, uh, uh you know, uh, I, I was fortunate to see very young, uh, but it's, it, it really, it really has to be a, uh, you know, when you're on set, it's a discipline. It's the same. You walk into a ring, it's a discipline. It's, 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 you know, you're there to get the job done and get out. And as long as you know, as the leader um, or the commander of that set, that, that that's the mentality everyone needs to, to uh, abide by. Um, I think that pretty much every word, every, every uh, little bit of direction or any crew guidance that you give is going to contain that, that feeling, because that's something that goes all day. I know producers that, uh, uh, what's that guy's name? It's like one of Chris Nolan's guys. Uh, buddy of his would say um, that he would, and I don't run my sets this way, but he would identify the person who would fail within two weeks. And he would keep an eye on that person, knowing that they're going to fail with yeah. the intention of making a, a, a scene of a, like a true example of that one person that's going to fail. Um, and the second that that person uh, like messes up, he explodes on them <laughs> with the intention of making sure yeah. that everyone on set knows that this is what's going to happen to you if you don't abide yeah. by that discipline. And it's like so, only as strong as like the weakest component. Like, absolutely, you know? and I think that I like I don't I don't apply that, but I have a lot of respect for for that. <laughs> you know? well, his um, his Chris films are pretty phenomenal. So. <laughs> It wasn't it's just like his, no, his, his like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, obviously right, right. it works, right? Yeah, it's 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 what it's like it's like his producer. It might be his producer. I like I, I but whose name I completely forgot who but anyway. Um but with that said he's he's, he's annoyed about that probably. <laughs> so if I'm, remember me, I made the film better. Uh okay, so uh and and Alec, final question. Uh and Alec and uh um we've been wanting to get you and Ryan together for a while. Alec is, is, uh, a, you know, a JFH member yeah, for a long time, uh, and yeah. racing enthusiast and, and, and more, uh, and, and a filmmaker. Yeah, a so, uh, working on it. I'm working on it right now. I'm learning to make some music actually. So that way I can post and, and record whatever I want and not have to worry about, you know, the copyright stuff. So, um, but I do have a question. Don't mind. Go for it. Of course, different. Okay. Uh, so I, I would imagine that when it comes to filming or, or any other part of your life where you have to create, there's a process that you take to get to that creative mindset. That Because, I, I, I mean, I feel that way for myself. I would imagine that um, for a lot of people, it's that way. Where do you find uh, the best places in your life to search for that creativity? as well as what does your own process look like to get into that creative mindset? Yeah, this is- So let's say like- a really, I'm sorry. No, no it's okay. okay. My, okay. I was gonna I, say- I, I got um, you. Okay, I, yeah, all right. <laughs> I was about to give you an example, but if you get it, you get it. <laughs> oh yeah, I totally get it. And I think it's, it's, it's very, very important. Um, and and it's an individual answer, obviously, for everyone. But um, I think the, the process is the same. But for me, it was really- understanding what got me to that space of being able to think of ideas right? and that can be the tools as well 
right? So if I didn't have, um, if I used a, as a pen and paper or as an iPad or whatever, I had to, re- you know, I'd look back at the times when I'd, I can't be creative and I'd, I'd be like, okay, what, what got me into that mental place where I blocked out everything else? And honestly, the, the, the headphones are a big deal. It knocks out a lot of the world, but, but I'd try and, I'd, you know, maybe it'd be watching trailers online or watching like inspirational, you know, directors I know are phenomenal that are doing short films that, that are now doing like big commercials for like Audi and stuff like that. Um, and uh, I look at their work and that would inspire me, but it'd basically be blocking off, blocking off all the noise, right? all the noise in the world and, and things you got to do and saying, okay, you know what? I've got these things to get done, but they're not getting done in the next three hours. So that's just a fact. My phone's off. No, I'm just in this for three hours. And that might that might get you to that place or it might just push you close to that place. Okay. But but it's that it's that it's 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 the noise around us, which can even be just people that live with you or around you, right? Just coming and saying, Oh, do you want a sandwich? So, so I need to be left alone right now. Just get it breaking out of a you know, you need to get an, almost like a trance in a kind of a way. I find it so and, and that's for me, I'd schedule meetings and that's that. So I said earlier, meetings would be like three, four hours apart. Because if I had a meeting, like a meeting, then an hour, then a meeting, then an hour, I, you know, I couldn't get anything done. I get nothing done, nothing crazy yeah. done. And it's just like, I can't get into something properly because then I'd be like meeting. So I'd know that as soon as I started doing it. And my mind is this clock ticking. Um, so, it, it, you know, and then, but and if you're really stuck, it's things like going for a walk. Has been the biggest thing I've found. Things like that. Like a, like some music. Sorry. So, like, if you were having that hour after or meeting every hour kind of thing, it would be like a release of pressure, right? That's what you like. Yeah. If you have that block, yeah. it's almost like trying to take yourself out of that space rather than isolating and focusing on something that might be stressing you out or something you might be trying to get done. Yeah, that and 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 if uh, if I have a whole day to work on something and but I'm still not getting into a groove, I go for a walk or something to get me to just you know. I mean, that's why people have good ideas in the shower, right? Because if, you know, the way the body works is we're distracted by the water hitting us that it frees up part of our mind that then thinks and comes up with ideas. That's a common answer. Many people that have a similar question, they say they get ideas in the shower. That's because we're distracted by some, something that we're not thinking about. And that frees up the other part of our brain to come alive. Um, and the only other technique I've used that has helped um, has been um, getting small things done. So at the start of the day, if I'm a bit tired in the morning, I'm not going to come up with the best thing then, but I'll just get quick hits on my, my to-do list done. Just small things done. Gives you that sense of accomplishment. Gives you that sense of like, you know, okay, I'm achieving something, getting things done. And that just, that just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. And it, and it also reduces the stress because you've dealt with these under issues. So nothing big, but little things like, you know, pay, pay my energy bills today, you know, log on, or do that, change the card number, whatever. All things that are a pain in the arse, right? But, you, but it's progress if you get it done. It takes five minutes to get it done. So no, understanding how you work and when you work best. If you work best later at night, then shift your day that way and stick to it um, as best you can. Some things you can't always do, but some things you can do and say that I'll I want to give you my best version of me when we chat, and that's going to be six o'clock around after six tonight. Is that can we make that work? Um, and just being open with people about that and understanding yourself. So I think that's how to answer that. I think that's how that's what I've learned to do.
Thank you. Ryan, let's hang out. Let's email me again. We'll we'll, we'll meet up. We'll do, do something together. Sounds for good. Sure. Ryan, thank you so much for 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 sharing no, so welcome. much with us tonight. Um, you know, there's there's so many takeaways, and uh, you know, I'm I'm just really really grateful for for having you in the, in not only in the community, um, but uh, having this whole community around uh, uh, to to be able to to share partake in this. So. Um, Thank you, everybody, for being here. Thank you, Ryan, and uh, uh, and you know this is this is our, our network. This is yeah, thanks, this is, guys. You know, everyone's always accessible. So if you have questions for Ryan, you can easily reach out to him. Uh, follow up questions. You may not have something right now, but but you you know come up with it tomorrow, etc. Uh, you know, you can always email me again if I don't you know, reply to you the first time. Just just keep hammering me again. I'll eventually get. I'll then I'll get it because sometimes I miss it. You know. So don't feel shy about that. Just just email me and then email me again and again. Say so like, email me with a blank email to say FYI email. <laughs> I won't be offended. I'll be like, I'm sorry. Well, thank you so much, man. Thank you everybody for being here. All right, thanks. Have a great night, and uh, we'll be back next week with another uh, episode of the Value Add from Real World, <laughs> our new our new series. So love everybody. Cheers, thank man. you all so much. Have a thank great you. Night. Thank you. Bye, Ryan. Bye. Good seeing you. Bye, bye, guys. You too. Bye. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Bye. <laughs>